Rob, what is our first main topic today? Well, John, our first main topic comes to us from S. Beam. Wondering if you had the chance to see the trailer for the Val documentary, the upcoming documentary film that follows the life and career of actor Val Kilmer. It's said to have personal camcorder footage from over 40 years and will have its world premiere at the Cannes Film Festival this week. It seems like quite the story of a famed actor that had cancer take a toll on a great acting career. Will you check this out next month when it hits Prime Video? Well, John, I got to tell you, I think both of us have seen the trailer. For those of you who don't know, and I didn't know this, Val Kilmer, uh, as he puts it in the in this trailer, he was one of the first people he knew who had a video camera. And beginning early on, even like I, I in the early 80s, I mean, pre-Real Genius, which was 85, pre-Top Secret, he started shooting him and all the people he worked with. And seeing this behind-the-scenes footage that you see snippets of in this documentary, I mean, it's a who's who of Hollywood. I mean, there's behind-the-scenes footage on Top Gun and Tombstone and The Doors, and yet it's his own personal look into... I mean, this this is the second documentary. There's another another a female uh, actress, and I forget who it is, did kind of the same thing, and now these tapes are being made public, and as a documentarian myself, and you too, John, to have this kind of footage is just... It's golden. And I watched this documentary, and it looks to be a point... I mean, I watched the trailer. It looks to be a very poignant look at... Val Kilmer's life and also all the people that work with them. And I, I was immediately taken with this. This went to the top of my list of things that I'd love to see. Variety says through Kilmer's own documentation, audiences will get a firsthand account of the actor's journey from making 16 millimeter home movies with his brother to performing in iconic roles for blockbusters like Top Gun, Batman Forever, Tombstone and The Doors. Kilmer also opens up about his throat cancer diagnosis and admits that he is still recovering and that because it is difficult to speak, he has a hard time being understood. It's prompted him to want to tell his story more than ever. John, I don't know, man. I saw this. I was affected by the trailer. I've always loved Val Kilmer as a performer. I mean, Real Genius is still one of my favorite teen movies <laughs> of the 80s. What do you think? I mean, did it excite you as much as it excited me? I, I was surprised by how much that trailer affected me, actually. Because I, I think Val Kilmer is one of these guys that has quietly gone unnoticed even to those that notice him. You know, of course, you bring up the name of Val Kilmer, Batman, you know, uh, Tombstone, what Top Gun, Top Secret, which is still, I think, other than Spaceballs, which I'm still not even sure I classify Spaceballs as a spoof or not, but that aside, Top Secret is one of my all-time favorite spoof movies, like, ever. Latrine, I, I love that movie. Then I'll tell you what else, Rob, this is going to shock a lot of people. You know what my favorite Val Kilmer movie is? I mean, both with his performance and the movie overall. It's not one anybody else would mention, I don't think. Did you ever see Ghost and the Darkness oh, that yeah. he did with, with Michael, Michael Douglas. Douglas? I love that movie. That That movie, to me, freaks me out. It engages me. I love it. And, you know, that that whole line he gives about bridges connect worlds. I mean, I, I love I, I build bridges. I love that movie so much. And in watching this trailer, it's like you realize like everything from the doors. And of course, the aforementioned Batman top secret goes in the darkness. Like when I say he's gone unrecognized, even by the people that recognize him, like you forget just how big of a career he's had. And. To see him telling his story in that way as just a kid 
behind the scenes talking to Kevin Bacon with his camera on. Yeah. That that looks so cool. And, you know, the story of a, it's a real tragedy at the same time dealing with the throat, throat cancer. This is obviously stuff we've not really been made privy to a lot in the past. I found myself watching this trailer. Robin, I don't know if you had the same experience, but I was watching the trailer and I completely lost track of time. And I was so engaged with it that when the trailer ended, I, I, I had to remind myself I wasn't actually watching the movie yet. Right. And I, I wanted to see more. There's not a lot of documentaries, especially about celebrities, that I find myself almost salivating to watch. This is one of them. I, yep. I, I cannot wait to see this. It looks and sounds fantastic, and uh, I can't wait to see it. The question is for you guys. Did you guys have a chance to see this trailer for Val, a documentary about and by Val Kilmer with his own home movies and stuff like that, telling the story? What did you guys think about it? Jump on down to the comments section below and let us know your thoughts. And by the way, our friend Brandon Beal sends in a super chat badge in the live chat. Thank you, Brandon. Appreciate the support, man. All right. With that down, let's move on to main topic number two. And our second main topic today gets submitted to us by Andrew Millen, who writes, Hey, John and Rob, if he's there, and he is here today, as a matter Hello. of fact. So I'll admit that I didn't think box office numbers would be as big as they are right now. I bet a friend that F9 wouldn't make $50 million opening weekend, and obviously I lost. Uh, I just read some reports saying it's possible that Black Widow could potentially hit $100 million, which to me seems insane given all the circumstances. What do you think the chances are of Widow hitting that $100 million mark? All right. Thanks a lot for writing that in, man. And obviously, right now, we are living in a period of time that the movie industry, both the studios, the distributors, the theaters have been dying to see. Getting to that point where we've got big movies coming back out on the big screen and seeing how they'll do. Now, obviously, Fast 9 did terrific, cracking $70 million in its opening weekend. Again, uh, in a world where the pandemic never happened, that doesn't sound all that impressive for a Fast and Furious movie. Understanding all the circumstances, it's damn impressive. Past $500 million worldwide, all that kind of stuff. Then all eyes turn to Black Widow. How would Black Widow fare? And... I will admit, if you guys have been watching the show, I've been a little back and forth on it. I mean, Black Widow is not one of the prime MCU characters, in my opinion, at any rate. This is a movie that has been delayed a lot, like many times over a long period of time. We are still dealing, you know, the, the theaters still have not fully recovered from the pandemic stuff yet. On top of all that, Disney is doing their dumb pay us 30 extra bucks on top of your Disney Plus subscription to have the privilege of watching this a little bit early at home and not even getting a theatrical experience. But the fact of the matter is, that's going to keep some people at home. So I've been a little uncertain. And then the projections came out, Rob. Projections saying that Black Widow was going to make between like 70 and 80, maybe even $90 million, which I thought, well, I mean, if that happens, that's incredible. But now... We're hearing whispers that it could maybe even crack the $100 million mark. Industry analysis are steadfast on the $75 to $90 million opening being a safe bet. However, 
With larger-than-expected numbers of people returning to theaters for films like A Quiet Place 2 and the ninth installment of the Fast and Furious franchise, combined with the overachieving popularity of Disney Plus's Loki series, some insiders are now speculating that the $100 million bar for an opening weekend is within realistic reach for the Scarlett Johansson vehicle. So now... They're saying, okay, not only is that 75 to 80 to 90 million, it, it is, it, they're saying it could be realistic to think it's going to hit 100. Now, listen, I'm not hearing anybody guaranteeing Black Widow's going to hit $100 million. But to me, the idea, even just a couple of weeks ago, that it even could hit $100 million, like 30 million more than Fast Nine did, to me seemed unreachable. But now, according to these things we're hearing, Rob, it may not actually be all that unreachable. And I'm sitting here now, if I'm going to set an over-under, I'm willing to give it a solid 35% chance that it actually hits $100 million. I've been feeling that more and more people, are you can kind of feel it online, people are excited. Those who haven't started going back to the movie theaters yet, they're getting more emboldened to go back to the theaters. It's been years since we've had an MCU movie in the theaters. People are stoked. The The movie itself is still hitting, holding over 80% of Rotten Tomatoes. It's getting positive word of mouth. To me, it's not top shelf MCU. I've seen the film. It's not top shelf MCU, but it's solid. It's good. It's an enjoyable, fun movie. I kind of wish I saw it on the big screen instead of having to watch a press screener at home. But I'm going to give it a 35% chance that it hits $100 million. And Rob, just a couple of weeks ago, I don't know that I would have given it 10 Rob, you're hearing now that they're saying that a $100 million opening weekend for the first time in forever could actually be happening with Black Widow. Is that actually possible? And if so, what do you give it this chances are? Well, John, today, uh, Fandango is reporting that Black Widow's advanced ticket sales are the best of the year. Black Widow's, check out these statistics. Black Widow's advanced ticket sales through Fandango are besting those of pre-pandemic Marvel titles, Spider-Man Homecoming, which had a domestic opening of 117 million, and Doctor Strange, which opened to 85 million. Uh, First weekend projections for Black Widow are between 80 to 90 million, and Disney's being safe with 75 million. I'm willing to go out on a limb and say it's gonna make 100 million. I think it will. What what would what would be the over under number you would give on that? Well, I'm not going to go. You know what? I I'm uh, if I had to be a betting man and had to get, I'm going to say 35 percent. It's going to go 100 million or over. But in my gut, I'm going to go over 100 million. I'm going to go 100 million or over because I think people are excited about this. It's the first Marvel movie in a long time, based on what Fandango's saying. It's the same thing I said about Captain Marvel. I think this is the kind of movie that mothers and daughters are going to go see together. It is a film that, and they've done a great job marketing this movie. It's about the relationship between two quote unquote sisters and an extended family, albeit one that was put together as a sham so I could infiltrate America, but whatever. It's still, it's, it's, it's family oriented. And I think it's about female empowerment. And I think we always underestimate how appealing this is to our, 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 our sisters who love these kinds of movies. And I think the female audience is going to turn out for this, whereas they don't turn out for something like Fast 9. I'm not saying that girls don't like the Fast 9 fr- or the Fast franchise, but here's a film that's literally they're showcasing the relationship between two very strong, very empowered women. 
And I think this is going to, I think they're underestimating the female audience. And I think it's going to go over a hundred million based on that. And by the way, like Pew and Johansson are great in this movie. They are, yep. they're, they're both very, very good. David Harbour for me steals every scene he's in. He steals absolutely every scene he's in. I like, I would, I said this before, I will say it again. I would easily watch a red guardian standalone film. I tomorrow I would go to the theaters tomorrow, line up, pay my money and go see a red guardian standalone film. You know, it's interesting, Rob, because we are still living in these interesting circumstances. It raises a, an interesting question. We often go into these big movie premieres and say, okay, what would be a disappointing number for this movie? What would be a let's pop bottles, you know, for, for this movie. You've got this. I would say anything under what Fast and the Furious made opening weekend, I think Disney at this point is going to be a little bit disappointed. Like if, if Black Widow comes out with like 65 million, which by the way was the original projection they had for it a couple of months ago, they were projecting about a 65 million opening. That's obviously changed and gone north. Today, I think they get disappointed with 65 million. I think if this thing hits 85 million, I think they pop bottles. If it hits 100 million, well, I, I, I just don't, I just don't know what it says about the power of the MCU in the box office. If this thing actually does hit that $100 million mark. So I'm still guessing it won't hit $100 million. You are guessing it will. Uh, either way, I think it's going to be close. So the question is for you guys. What do you think about these box office projections we're hearing for Black Widow? Especially understanding that it's still going to be released for people at home on Disney+. Plus. Can we actually see $100 million worth of people get out to the theaters to go see this thing? What are your guys' thoughts? Jump down into the comments section below and let us know your thoughts. Okay, guys. With that down, let's move on to main topic number three. Rob, what is our third main topic today? Well, our third main topic comes to us from Mr. Sam Quinn. Hey, John. So, what did you think of the new Loki episode? I have to admit, I was a bit let down by it. Although there was some crazy good stuff in there as well. Also, no post credit scene was really disappointing. But man, there were a lot of Easter eggs in there. Thoughts? Well, John, like we were talking about before the show started, I, I have to say, I thought the first two episodes of Loki were terrific, but these the last three... While episode four I thought was really good, in a way, they it seems to me that they've been very slight in terms of plot development. I mean, clearly, they're dealing with some universe-shaking events. Uh, the Time Variance Authority is something out of... I mean, this show's going deep, deep, deep into Marvel lore with the uh, Time Variance Authority and, of course, the... I don't want to say anything about spoilers, but there's an entity that is introduced that was introduced in the in the uh, end of the last episode but we get to find out a lot more about that entity that is very much steeped in marvel lore and i i liked everything that happened in this episode but i found a lot of it like it didn't really i mean it led somewhere but i felt like a lot of it was kind of fillery weird bizarre it it for something that started out so compelling I feel the last three episodes ultimately have left me a little perplexed, maybe? I don't know. What do you think? You know, I I was very disappointed in episode three, right? Like episode three to me, it was it was uh, such a it was a waste of time. 
And I get it. A lot of people would then come back. Well, John, they they needed to show the development of the bud between Loki and Sylvie. Yes. But guess what? Every other showrunner movie can accomplish that and do four or five other things at the same time. Yeah. To make to make the episode worth being a chapter in the story, and I still to this day I, th- I feel like episode three was a complete kind of waste of time. Literally, I, I still believe that if somebody comes to me and says, "John, I haven't started watching Loki yet. Do I have to watch every episode?" I can still say to them, "Listen, you can skip episode three. All you have to know from episode three is that Loki hears that all the agents of the t- of the TVA are actually variants themselves." If you know that piece of information, you can go right from episode two to episode four, in my opinion. And you still can. I loved episode four. Loved episode four. I ate episode four up. I thought it was great. And so then I had a lot of anticipation going into episode uh, going into episode five because this is the second to last episode. They have now got to set all the stage for all the culmination and everything wrapping up in the final episode. So to me, that meant this episode, we we finally get the idea, the identity of who is our antagonist, who is the man behind the curtain in Wizard of Oz speak. I really thought we were going to get that this episode, as well as some other things. And I, I got to say this. I feel exactly the same way as the person who wrote in the question. I feel disappointed and let down by the episode, not as badly as episode three, but I felt a little bit let down with it, even though I thought there was some really fantastic stuff in it. Like, I'll just tell you right now, because I put this out on Twitter, because it's it's not an important story part at all. It's just something, it's a little Easter egg that's off in the background that if you blink, you'll miss it. But like I freaked out and got on Twitter. It's like, holy shit, it's the Thanos copter. I can't believe they put the Thanos. And again, that's not giving away any story thing. It's just if you blink, you'll miss it. It's kind of in the background in a corner sort of thing. But this this was easily out of all the MCU shows and all the MCU episodes we've had from WandaVision and, and Falcon and Winter Soldier and now Loki, this absolutely had all the Easter eggs <laughs> like there, every frame I felt like had seen right from the beginning of the episode, right from the beginning episode, you know, a camera is sweeping through the city and there's some big Easter eggs that are there. If you know, to look for them. And, you know, as the camera is descending underground, there's a bunch of big Easter eggs in there as well. In this room where all the characters are talking, there's a bunch of Easter eggs in there as well. They're like peppered all over the place. And on that level, it was pretty fun. It was pretty fun. But by the time the episode ended, I felt like, really? That, that's it? That's the entire episode? So, yeah, I, again, a lot of things in it that made me smile. A lot of things that made me smile. And, of course, you know, in the post credit scene of episode four, we got to look at Alligator Loki. And the alligator Loki stuff in this episode is pretty funny. It put a smile on my face. I So yeah, I, I enjoyed it more than I did episode three. But I, I got to say, I felt like there were only two episodes left. It's time to put the foot to the floor. It's time to put the pedal to the metal. It's time to put this thing into high gear and really race to the home stretch in our final two episodes. And I just kind of felt like episode five was a big pause. And I, but you know, I, I, I don't know. Again, I didn't dislike it like I did episode three. There were a lot of things that put smiles on my faces throughout. 
but overall a little bit disappointed. I will say this, Rob, and and I'm going to be very, very careful to make sure we don't spoil anything here. But there are multiple things, both Easter egg-wise and in the episode itself, that I believe now we can use the words clearly point us to who is behind the curtain. I, I, I today, like right up until bef- before the episode started yesterday, I was still kind of unsure ultimately who the person behind the curtain was going to be. After seeing that episode, I feel fairly confident I know who it's going to be. And I think you do too. I won't say yeah. who, what, where, when, or why. We'll leave that up to people to see it. But anyway, guys. That's our thoughts on the episode of Loki yesterday, heading into the final stretch. I I am dying for the final episode. I am completely dying for this final episode. And once again, guys, just a reminder that we today at four o'clock, that's four o'clock Los Angeles time. You can figure out whatever time that is where you guys live. We are going to be doing our full open spoiler discussion of episode five, where we will talk in detail of every little thing that's went on in the episode. If you guys are interested in that, make sure you come back and join us at four o'clock for that. We hope to see you guys there. Okay, guys, with all that down and out of the way, let's now move on and start taking your live questions, shall we? And uh, we already told you how to send in a live comment or question, so let's not waste any time and get right into it. And we're going to start things off here today with Anonymous, who writes, Hey, John, what are your thoughts on The Wolf of Wall Street? Please elaborate. Well, I'm not going to sit here and give a 15-minute review of Wolf of Wall Street. I, I really... Look, it's not my favorite Scorsese movie, Rob, but... Oh my God, it's, it's such a power. My one criticism of Wolf of Wall Street, and and this is a criticism I have of a lot of movies, even some of my all time favorite ones is it was, it was a bit too long. They should, that movie should have been shortened up a bit, I think, but Leonardo DiCaprio was incredible. The scene with Leonardo DiCaprio, Matthew McConaughey, I mean, I, that I love that scene. Um, the Jonah Hill, even though he had gotten Oscar recognition before, to me, this was a revelation of really just how good Jonah Hill can be. Um, aside from just his comedic stuff, this was the movie. Because I, what was it? The one he did with Brad Pitt. Um, Money the one ball. about baseball. Moneyball. Thank you. Like Moneyball gave us a look. This this really was a revelation to me for that. Uh, the the whole scene where you see him driving home, but you realize that was just his perception of him driving home. And then you see the actual events of him driving oh. home. It was funny. And of course it was our introduction to Margot Robbie, which dear God, like Rob, I always say the sexiest I've ever seen any man or woman in a movie was Cameron Diaz in the mask. But if there was a second place to that, it might be Margot Robbie in Wolf of Wall Street. I mean, and and the way her and Leo played off each other, I loved it. What were your thoughts on Wolf of Wall Street, dude? <laughs> I went and saw Wolf of Wall Street, Wolf of Wall Street, by myself on Christmas Day. I don't think I've ever <laughs> seen a Christmas movie that was more well, not exactly <laughs> anti-Christmas, but I loved it. Now, like you. I didn't think it was like the greatest Scorsese movie, but like a lot of my favorite movies, the more I've watched it, the more I love it. I mean, it's portrayal of just ultimate decadence and it's just so wildly entertaining. (laughs) And 
uh, Margot Robbie in that movie, one of the the hottest characters ever to be portrayed on screen, and her Brooklyn accent. I don't know how an Australian was able to nail that Brooklyn accent, but she does. And I think you're right. Uh, Jonah Hill is Donnie and DiCaprio together. I mean, my God, that movie is just so full. Can you imagine how much fun it was to make that movie? Can't even I imagine. I love The Wolf of Wall Street. Can't even imagine. All right, let's move on here. Next up, we've got uh, Brian Yeager who writes, hello, John, big fan of the show. Thank you, Brian. Uh, I, I got one for you. Has there been an actor that you loved who eventually reached such a slump in their career that you could never go back, you could never get back on board with them despite a major comeback? For me, that's been Eddie Murphy. Uh, honestly, no. Like, un unless, Rob, it's an actor that fell out of Hollywood because of their own off-camera extreme stupidity and doing something like just whatever, but an actor who just hit a slump. I don't know. I think we love seeing those things. Like, like John Travolta did it like twice. John right. Travolta did like two comes back. There was the, the reconnaissance, of course, that was uh, one of the big popular ones. Brendan Fraser might be starting a, a renaissance of some sorts uh, a little bit now. I mean, I don't know. I, I have never had one that just hit a bad streak of movies and then I never wanted to watch them again. I, I've never had one of those for myself, really. What about you, Rob? Uh, no. I mean, I haven't either. And I, uh, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. All right. Next up, we've got IMAV who writes, although I am glad uh, it didn't cost extra included with Pro Amazon Prime, I quite enjoyed t the Tomorrow War. I did too. I ended up watching it for a second time. Um over the uh, holiday weekend with my family and I even liked it a little bit more the second time. Again, I still I still don't think The Tomorrow War is a great movie, but it's creative. It does some interesting things with the sci-fi trope and I yep. had fun with it. I, I really did. And uh, Yvonne Strahovski is just, I love her. I've loved her since Chuck. I love her in The Handmaid's Tale and I really did like her here. All right, next up, James writes, if Avengers Infinity Saga was supposed to happen, uh, when those other 16,304,000 other futures Doctor Strange saw happens, would the TVA bring Thanos or whoever in as a variant? Regardless of this, I think the TVA is a sham. Some, sent, uh, some sent, sentience experiment on timeline. Well, here's the thing. I explained this before one last time. I, I believe, imagine time as a solid thing. It has the beginning, it has the end, and everything that happens in the middle. The TVA stands outside of time. Doctor Strange seeing 16 million possible outcomes, these are all things within the time. So I don't think any of that was variation or anything like that. At least that's my take on it right now. So, yeah, there's that. And, of course, we are finally, finally, James, we are finally getting close to our answers, even though they should have given more of them in the second to last episode, because now we only have one episode left, which means they're going to give us some answers and we're going to have no time to soak in them. But whatever. We'll see how that final episode goes. All right. Next up, Eric Baker writes, hello, John and Rob. Question. If you guys were a variant of yourselves, pick the other person's crime against the sacred timeline. Love everything that you <laughs> do. Bring on the filthy. Well, obviously, Rob's variant is the one who picked up his first hot toy and said, nah, and put it down. That That is the Robert Meyer Burnett variant, variant clearly to me. So that's it. Rob, what's what's my variance? What's my variant? Uh, you didn't start a hip hop dance crew in Canada. <laughs> To be and and you would have you would have probably gone into the you'd gone to seminary and 
join the priesthood, but you might you might be working at the Vatican now, probably doing good for all of humanity, but you certainly wouldn't be a pundit on YouTube, and I wouldn't know you. Uh, just to be clear, I didn't start the crew. I didn't start the breakdown. I was I was able to join it though, but that yeah that would be. That would be a pretty significant variance. Or the first time I tried ketchup on eggs and I went, mmm, that's delicious. Yeah, that would that would be a pretty good variation of me. All right, thanks for the question, Eric. All right, next up, uh, Admiral Ozzel, one of my favorite little-known Star Wars characters. Uh, hi, John. Have you watched Ronald D. Moore's For All Mankind? We speak about it often on this show. Oh. Uh, if not, please pause the show, go to your living room, binge season one and two, and come back. Go ahead, I'll wait. I really enjoy For All Mankind. Uh, Rob, I hadn't seen it yet when my brother-in-law, Ray, was over at, at my place for a couple days because we were working on a project, and he put that show on, to, on in the background. And so I kind of caught a little bit of the corner of my eye, and then all of a sudden, it wasn't just out of the corner of my eye, I was just watching it. And then I just got up from my workstation and just went and sat down with him in the living room and was watching it. I really like the show. What do you think about For All Mankind? John, uh, first of all, I love For All Mankind, and I have to say the last episode of season two is one of my favorite hours of television I've seen in 20 years. Boom, boom. Big praise. It's a really good yeah. show. If you guys have not had a chance, again, Apple Plus... Well, I I admit, I dismissed Apple Plus. Remember a year and a half ago when they had that big event where they announced, oh, look at all the shows we're going to do for Apple Plus. And I thought, this doesn't look appealing at all. For All Mankind, Ted Lasso, Morning Show, I didn't like C, but whatever. Uh, they've really, uh, hey, give them their due, man. They've kind of been crushing it. So, um, yeah, yeah, there you go. All right, next up, we've got an anonymous viewer who writes, Y'all are lucky that I'm not the head of Sony because with all this spamming for Spider-Man trailer on every Sony social media post, I'd release it in November just out of spite. I really can't stand these people anymore. I know I'm a petty man. And it, I, I, Rob, I, I still don't understand people's obsession with give me a commercial. Show me advertising. But yeah, I mean, and he's right. There was this thing. I don't know if you've seen this, but like every time Sony like posts anything social media wise, the comments of it just get flooded with, where's the Spider-Man trailer? Where's the Spider-Man trailer? Guys, you you were actually asking them to sit you down and waste your time watching a commercial. And don't get me wrong. The second a Spider-Man No Way Home trailer drops, I'm watching that sucker for sure. But I'm not sitting up at night going, I can't wait to see a commercial. Can't wait to see a commercial. Right. I, I, I just, and this coming from a guy who did a documentary about trailers. I clearly have a big appreciation for trailers, but... Yeah, it is. It is kind of crazy. They've been inundated with that. So thanks for sharing that anonymous. All right. Next up, uh, Ms. Marvel Martian writes, hey, John, have you seen the new toy leak Spider-Man costumes? We actually talked about that the other day. Too many different suits with different tech or magic. Why can't we just have a basic Spider-Man suit? Although I really like the black stealth suit from uh, uh, from far from home. Yeah, I mean, look, Rob, I, I, I honestly... This sounds like old world thinking, but I think it's obvious. They create variations of the suits to sell more toys. Of course. I, I mean, it's the same reason why sports teams now have alternate jerseys so they can sell more jerseys. Hey, yeah. Bob, the new, new New York Giants fan, he's already got all the New York Giants jerseys. So he's not going to buy more. Well, what do we do? Let's create an alternate jersey that they wear once a year. Boom. And then they sell all that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, I'm kind of with you. I wish they were just... I mean, it's the reason why every movie that Captain Marvel is in, or uh, Captain America, I should say, Chris Evans was wearing a slight variation, sometimes a major variation, 
uh, to it as well. I think it's really just for merchandising. I don't know, Rob, why do you think that is in today's day and age? They keep switching the costumes up so much. Well, I, I think you nailed it. I mean, idiots like me have to have every variation. Uh, uh, hot toys that cost 250 bucks, you know. Oh, I've got to get that suit. <laughs> I mean, now they're making Spider-Man suits. If they didn't make enough of the movies, now, now they're doing all the suits from the video game. You know, yep. it's, it's, it's endless and you do have, it, I, I'm not a, I'm not a completist in that way. I get my favorite figures, but of course that's why they do it. You know, if they kept the suit the same, what good would that be? Like really, when you think about it, like who's tailoring the suits in the next Avengers movie, Hey cap, who made this suit? Like who made your stealth suit in, uh, in winter soldier, you know, that kind of all blue and did somebody make that for you? Did you go to the quartermaster at shield and say, bruh? I just need a good look. I need a different look. I I need a night look. I need a stealth suit. Can you make one for me? Tony Stark was always making, like, why did he make Iron Man? Or why did he make Iron Spider? I don't know. Just because he wanted to. He figured, you know what? Merchandising. That's why. Merchandising. Spider-Man. I'm not going to make it look like, I'm going to give it a little bit more gold. I'm going to give it a little bit more, little zhuzh there. Why not? And a little bit of cowbell. And whenever, as soon as you said merchandising, all I heard was Mel Brooks and Spaceballs. Merchandising. Anyway, uh, yeah, so there's that. And by the way, the only hot toy Spider-Man I want right now is Night Monkey. Just give me give me Night Monkey. All right, next That's up. That's a really, by the way, it's out and it's really good. You're kidding. I was joking. There really is. There's a Night Monkey Dude, hot toy? not only is there one. That's It's got awesome. a really cool diorama base. It's awesome. You that- love it. That is awesome. I love that. All right, let's move on. Chuck writes, Hey, John, last week you and Rob were discussing prequels and not really liking most of them. I totally agree, but I wanted your thoughts on the island flashbacks of Arrow. I like them. That's a really good example of that. I like them when they were informed, informing present-day story, otherwise not so much thoughts. Yeah, Rob, Rob and I were talking the other day last week about you know not minding prequel material in something if they're flashbacks that are being used to give commentary and information on the current story so we talked about things like highlander that did things like that arrow is actually a terrific example of that that was actually a really for at least the first few years that was a really effective storytelling tool that we'd be in present day you know, Oliver is doing his stuff and then they'd flash back to his time on the island that but that was giving us, you know, background and information and context to what he was going through now. And they go back and forth. That's a really good example of that, Chuck. Thanks for sharing that, man. All right. Next up, uh, John and Rob Suicide Squad. Oh, sorry. That's not the name. The name is Chuck. The mystery also writes John and Rob. Suicide Squad, Halloween Kills, and Dune were my top three most anticipated films of 2021 until I saw the trailer for The Many Saints of Newark, which now has to take one of those spots. What a trailer, as Rob would say, I'm here for it. And yeah, of course, we reviewed that trailer a couple of days ago, Rob, and I watched it again yesterday because Anne hadn't seen it. We we were flipping through YouTube. I said, oh, you got to watch this. And she never even watched The Sopranos. And Anne was like, we got to watch that. I'm like, right? Like... That says something. If somebody who had never even seen The Sopranos watches that trailer and goes, we got to get on that, that says something about it. You've had a couple of days to reflect on that trailer now. What are your thoughts on it? Oh, dude, I I thought it looked great. And having James Gandolfini's son play young Tony Soprano, I'm like, come on. I mean, it looks so good. What what do you think stood out to you the most? What's that? What what is the X factor of that trailer to you? Do you think that really just brings you in? I think it it looks like it tells a really compelling, sprawling story with twists and turns. And 
uh, it, it promises to be something rather epic. You know, I, I think to me, it was when I was a kid, you know, I'd go to the bookstore and I'd, I'd look at all the science fiction and horror novels and I'd read the back of the paperbacks. And there were certain books that just had some kind of something that was intellectually compelling to me, something that I'd never heard before. Like I remember reading the back of a book called They Thirst by Robert McCammon. And it was about vampires completely taking over Los Angeles. Hmm. And I was like, normally you only see like one vampire, but what happens to a city if it's completely taken over? This was like in 1981, it's probably 13. I'm like, oh man, I got to read that. So I look at this, this story and, you know, The Sopranos was sort of, it was never sprawling, but this looks like it's, it's totally sprawling. Like you've got that all of New Jersey is on fire with these, these, these criminal elements all vying for power. And I'm like, this looks pretty epic as far as The Sopranos story goes. And I'm like, wow, cool, crucible, trial by fire for young Tony. How does he end up being the man that he becomes? We're going to find out. And I can't wait. Yep, absolutely. All right, next up, we've got uh, Paul Starguy who writes, one of three. I watched another great discovery show recently, UFO Declassified, live hosted by Josh Gates. It's a three-hour panel discussion examining the recent government report on unidentified aerial phenomena, or UP, UAPs, i.e. UFOs. I have a Bachelor of Science in Astronomy and Physics and a Master's of Science in Planetary Science and have been interested in the examination of UFOs since the 1970s. Based on this show and others I've seen in the last two years, Unidentified History and Contact, Discovery slash Science, I strongly believe that these objects are not something created in 21st century Earth. Continued scientific study that I hope to be part of will eventually expose the truth. I strongly encourage anyone interested in UAP to watch the shows mentioned above. I, I mean, I still find that those shows to be kind of hack shows. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. And, and again, hey, if you like those shows, awesome. I'm not I'm not poo-pooing on your parade. I'm not trying to yuck on your yum. I, I just, for me personally, I kind of find them kind of be kind of hack shows, to be honest. So I really don't pay any attention to those shows at all. But I don't know, Rob, do you ever watch those, those types of uh, programs? I don't personally, but what about you? Uh, look, they used to be the kind of thing that was right up my alley, but now they, they're all so speculative. I mean, I much prefer shows about like astronomy that have real science. Because, you know, John, I want to believe I've been Fox Mulder all my life. If there were really aliens out there, I'd be the first person to walk up to the, the, the saucer and knock on the door and be like, hey, yo, what's up? I'm here from Earth. Welcome. <laughs> but a lot of these a lot of these things, there isn't it's all speculation. There's not enough information, real information. So I just don't I don't watch a lot of them. No. But hey, listen, it's it's the interesting thing about the world and discoveries. We learn new things all the time and things we like one day we don't the next and things we think are junk one day, the next day we think we're treasure. So hey, it's the part of the ever-expanding human consciousness, my friends. It's a part of the ever-growing human consciousness. All right, thanks for sharing your thoughts on that, Paul. Appreciate that, man. All right, next up, uh, Miguel Zayn writes, Hey, John, I finally saw A Quiet Place 2. Excellent. This weekend and No Sudden Move. I still haven't watched No Sudden Move. I want to watch that. I love the sequel. The directing I thought was great. You even mentioned it. Uh, you even mentioned it uh, to be Spielberg-esque. Are we dealing with uh, cannibals now? I really like No Sudden Move. Thoughts? Thank you. Well, again, I haven't seen No Sudden Move yet. I do want to watch that. It, it looks like the cast is incredible. David Harbour, John Hamm, Benicio Del Toro, Brendan Fraser, uh, Don Cheadle, the great Don Cheadle in there, obviously. 
Um, so there's a lot of in thing, things in there that I do want to see, but I haven't seen that yet. But yeah, Quiet Place 2, I've already been on record about that. I freaking love that movie. I think I, I still need more time to ponder it, but I think I even like it more than Quiet Place 1. And Quiet Place One was my favorite film of 2018, so that's that's saying a lot, man. That's saying. Anyway, I'm glad you had a chance to watch it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. All right, Paul Starguy writes in again, and he writes, one of four. I agree with you, John, that the season eight finale of Blacklist was terrible. Yeah, I was really disappointed by it, to be honest. Mm. Although I also love James Spader and the weekly Blacklist reveal, it frustrates me to no end that they haven't revealed Reddington's true identity. Hopefully they do it er, um, it, do it early in season nine and move on to something else. A, re- a viewer suggested earlier in the week that Reddington is Katarina. Well, they were kind of implying that, but I, I don't think that's ultimately what they're doing. And I'm starting to buy into that theory Here's why. A, Reddington tells Dembe to spread his remains in the Yenisee, a river in Siberia, indicating that he's Russian. Not necessarily. Because uh, remember, Reddington talks about a lot of places all around the world in the show. That doesn't necessarily mean that he comes from those places. Anyway, uh, look for future reveal. Katarina was from this area. B, in penultimate episode, Katarina tells Liz she created Reddington. Yes. Uh See, Reddington tells Liz he can't reveal his ID or she won't be able to kill him, which makes sense if if he's Katarina, as Liz has already killed her father. Uh, here's the thing, though. They did a lot of things in that finale, those last two episodes, that were felt like they were leading breadcrumbs to get us to guess that he was actually Katarina. That he was that Raymond Reddington was actually Liz's mother. Um, and, yeah. and they were laying out those breadcrumbs. They were totally laying them out. But then in the second episode, the finale, they do a couple of things that really made it seem he was a separate individual. On top of that, and Rob, maybe this is my, I'm no medical doctor. I I, I don't know. I, I know a good amount of law and I know a bunch about movies. I'm no medical doctor. Also, don't forget that this season and in the past, but particularly this season, Raymond had a very active sexual relationship uh, with that. With, by the way, that whole relationship, he, I forget the name of the woman that he had the relationship with, but that sweet, sweet character. I thought that was one of the sweetest things ever in the blacklist, but he had a very active sexual relationship with that woman. And I don't know how completely plausible that is. Uh, if, if that was actually Katarina, but so I'm going to guess it's not Katarina, but I, I agree. I was disappointed with the finale. Rob did. I can't remember if you had a chance to watch the, the final two episodes of the blacklist. I was personally kind of let down by it. What did you think? Oh dude, you know, I've been watching the blacklist since the beginning and it's just gotten to the point where I'm like, eh. you know, they keep, they played with us so many times and I, I'm kind of tired of it, and it was frustrating. It was but so frustrating. I'm gonna watch. Yeah, I'm still, you know why? Because I love me some Spader. Oh, I've been too. a James Spader fan all the way back to the '80s when he was like in Pretty in Pink and Jack's Back, and even a bad movie like The New Kids when he played villain Dutra. But the, I mean, him as Rip the drug dealer in Lesson Zero. Come on, and all- I'll watch that. All the Emmys Sexualized and videotape. Boston so good. Legal. Oh, um, he was so good with Shatner. Him and Come Shatner, on. dude. Him and Shatner is honestly right up there with Sam and Dean Winchester as my favorite 
I mean, Sam and Dean were brothers, but buddies, uh, buddy stuff in TV history was Spader and Shatner. I mean, that that stuff was magic. But, you know, Blacklist is one of those show, rare shows where I'm actually more interested in it as the villain of the week than I am about the overarching story. Most people prefer the overarching story. I actually really love the blacklist for the villain of the week. Who's the next name on the blacklist and how are they going to get them? So I'm still on board, but yeah, that, that finale was Paul. It was, it was pretty frustrating. I got to admit. All right, next up Jason in Prescott writes, your knowledge and all you do is inspirational. Thank you, man. Uh, your personality and wacky sense of humor, which completely matches up with mine, makes watching the show even greater. That goes for you and Rob. P.S. I love Kim's Convenience. Thanks for your recommendation. Kim's Convenience is so great. It only pisses me off more. The, whenever I think of Kim's Convenience now, it just pisses me off more about how that whole thing came to an end, unfortunately. That show was a treasure. If you guys have not started watching Kim's Convenience, you should. Th I'm glad that you like it, Jason, and thanks so much for the kind words, man. We really appreciate it. All right, Isaac Beebe writes, when Loki first arrives at the TVA, he is told that his powers would not work there. If that were true, then shouldn't he be in his frost giant form since his human appearance is actually just an Asgardian illusion? Maybe yes, maybe no. I, I gave some thought to that before, Rob. I think once he changed, that's it. He changed. I, I think I think that was just it. He changed. Like Some people think that Sylvia, uh, Sylvie was Tom Hiddleston's Loki who just then transformed into... A girl, if that was the case, wouldn't she just transform back into Tom Hiddleston? And I think that once he changed, he was now changed. It's like if if he had his hand cut off and then goes to the TVA, his hand doesn't reappear. It, that's just that's just what he is now. That is now what right. he is. So that's my take on. It. Do you agree with that, Rob? Yeah, I do. I agree with that. Yes. Okay. I, I mean, we may be wrong, but that's our take on it right now. At any rate, Isaac, thanks for asking, man. All right, Marie Seifring writes, "Hey, John and Rob." When rating the worst Marvel theatrical adaptations, why doesn't the 1986 masterpiece Howard the Duck get any attention? I've seen it once and I can only say WTF thanks. Yeah, Howard the Duck is terrible. I mean, it just it just is. I mean, it's a bit, everybody laughs about Howard the Duck and blah, blah, blah. But it is really just quite terrible. I honestly, Rob, I think part of the reason is when people talk about Marvel movies now, nobody talks about Marvel adaptations. We all talk about the MCU. You know, nobody talks about Roger Corman's Fantastic Four. We don't talk about, remember that early Captain America movie with Red Skull with that terrible makeup and stuff like that? I mean, no, we don't talk about those. We really just talk about the MCU. But yeah, I Howard the Duck was terrible. I don't, I don't like the character at all. And so that's why when people like, man, they got to get, ever since James Gunn decided to cameo him in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, which was pretty cool, I'm like, I have no interest in them pursuing Howard the Duck. I don't know, Rob, how do you feel about Howard the Duck? Well, John, it just so happens that I purchased this week Howard the Duck in 4K. Of course you did. <laughs> of course you did. To own it. I'll tell you something about Howard the Duck. I was a huge fan and still am of the Steve Gerber comics that Howard the Duck is based on. Trapped in a world he didn't make. Great, great comics. The Howard the Duck, the 80s Howard the Duck is a major misfire. I mean, one of the biggest misfires maybe in Hollywood history. It's got some great ILM effects, but I think there's a lesson in just how big of a misfire it is. It is not a good movie. But I watch it and I think to myself, how did this film get made? Like, did anybody go, maybe this, because the, the thing is, the character of Howard the Duck in the movie Howard the Duck is nothing like 
the comic book Howard the Duck. Nothing. And you wonder, how did this happen? It's a cautionary tale, to be sure. <laughs> and I, I, to this day, now, the Howard the Duck that James Gunn um, portrayed, even briefly in the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, I would be, I'm like, I would watch a Howard the Duck movie if James Gunn did it. Because I think James Gunn's sensibilities are perfect. Like, I, I used to joke, maybe even on this show, that I would love to see Benicio Del Toro, Jeff Goldblum, and Howard the Duck travel around the Marvel Universe on some kind of a wacky cosmic adventure. You know, <laughs> the collector, his brother, and Howard the Duck uh, could be a wonderful, crazy movie. And after we've seen Loki, anything is possible. But man, but now I have it on 4K, John, so it's going to look really good. All right, let's move on here. Next up, Howard the, Howard the Duck. I didn't think we'd be talking about him today. All right, uh, Aaron Moen writes, Hey, John, and maybe Rob, crazy theory. What if She-Hulk and Ironheart are female variants of Hulk and Iron Man? They're not. Uh, could be a fun twist on the source material. Do you think that is a possibility? Absolutely 1,000% zero. Um, it, it, Rob, it feels like every time one of these shows come up, everybody starts thinking all of the rest of the MCU is now going to be all about some element from that show. We saw it in WandaVision, not so much yeah. in Falcon the Winter Soldier. Now, I feel like everybody's writing in, do you think with, Doctor Strange is going to be about variants. Do you think about the next movie is going to be variants and everything's variants? And I don't think so. But the really thing, big thing why it's 100% no is because Mark Ruffalo, remember, she's Ruffalo's cousin. I mean, well, she's Banner's cousin. Uh, and Ruffalo is going to be in the movie. And he's going to be like there as a family member. So no, I I, I, I don't often use the goose egg. I, I don't often use the term zero. But I personally think no insider information. Uh, but I personally think it's a 0% chance that we're just going to find out their variants. Rob, what do you think? Uh, I think you're absolutely right about that. I, I, I mean, variants are great when you're talking about the TVA. But when it comes to, I, I mean, we have the comic lore. She-Hulk is a separate character. We know where She-Hulk came from. And I don't think, you know, outside of this Loki series and the TVA, I don't think we're going to have a lot of talk of variants. Because that... Suddenly, if that's all we're going to have, you, you're going down an endless rabbit hole. And I think ultimately the Marvel Universe is not about variants. It's about real people. It's, well, quote unquote, real people. Quote unquote. <laughs> all right. Next up, Paul Starguy writes, uh, one of two. I recently bought my tickets for Black Widow on the 10th, for the 10th of July at a 110 showing, which is the first showing that day. Normally, it costs six seventy five, but under the Byzantine pricing structure employed by my local Cinemark, if the movie starts after one p.m., it costs eight dollars and seventy five cents. Same thing happened to me for A Quiet Place. They've also been known for charging more if the movie ends after five p.m. Does this seem normal or bizarre to you? I wish they'd go back to one price for all matinee showings. Well, I mean, here's honestly, Paul. Here's here's the reality. I know I and you and all consumers, we want everything as cheap as we can. And honestly, we'd rather get everything for free. That is what we do. That is what I do. <laughs> that is what we as consumers want. But really, remember, we're not entitled to matinee prices. Matinee prices uh, that are made cheaper are not because uh, they should be cheaper. It's because that is just a theater's way to try to entice people to come to the movies at hours that they normally don't go to the movies. You know, hey, this is our slow time. So, hey, 
let's make the prices for the tickets a little bit cheaper during the slow time to try to increase. You know what it's like, Rob? Me, Ann, and a bunch of our friends went out to a restaurant called Yard House uh, out here the other day. And, you know, they do most of their business after 6 p.m. So from 3 to 6, they have these happy hour pricings where all these things on the menu are like half price because, you know, hey, oh, come on in during this these hours. But they don't owe that to us. They don't owe us half price entrees during happy hour. It's simply a marketing ploy. So obviously, I like really cheap matinee prices. Obviously, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 a it's a marketing tool. It's not really something that we deserve to have there. I don't know, Rob. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I I completely agree with that. It's 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 <laughs> you know, people do what they need to do to make cash. And and they they react accordingly to what the market will bear. And I think that's how everything works. I mean, people forget like entertainment, movies, TV. It ain't show friends, John. It's show business. Show and I, business. I, I find nothing wrong with it's it's a product to be sold. So I find nothing wrong with people making money off the product that they're selling. All right. Next up. Thanks for running that in, Paul. Next up, uh, Madhu Vatten writes, John, I am angry. Because of Black Widow premiering on Disney Plus at the same time as cinemas, many theaters here in Norway are boycotting the film. Yeah, I heard about that. So now I have to pay 30 bucks to see it, and it will be on my stupid TV at home. I can't really believe it. Yeah, I, I feel bad about that, that there are, per, there are a number of territories that the theater chains there have decided that, no, Disney, we're not going to play your movie because... We don't play movies that are having day and date release on TV. And we're not going to get into that debate, but I respect their position on that. Unfortunately, that leaves a lot of movie-going lovers, like like true movie-going lovers, with no option to go and see the movie on the big screen, the way it's meant to be seen. You know, we quoted the director of uh, Black Widow yesterday who said, like, when she was asked, what does she think about Disney putting out on Disney Plus? And she was very, very diplomatic about it but she was like listen i made this movie to be seen on the big screen that's how i want it to be seen but it really is unfortunate madhu and 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 it sucks and i wish you could see it in the way it's meant to be seen but hey at least you still get to see it at least you still get to see it brother so at least there's that all right ryan g writes Hey, John, I just finished Entourage the series. It was okay, the good and the bad. I also saw the movie. It was bad, but oh well, on to the next series. You know what? I really liked Entourage. Up until, up until, for those of you who are Entourage vets, up until they got to their Vin developed a cocaine problem. Remember that? When he was dating Sasha? Yep. What was the name of the uh, Sasha... Sasha Gray, famous porn star. They they brought Sasha Gray onto the show and made her, she played herself and she was dating Vin and he had the big cocaine problem. And I kind of tapped out of the show after that because it's like every episode was the same. Oh, it looks like Vin has a cocaine problem and it's threatening to ruin his life. Next episode. Ooh, it looks like Vin has a cocaine problem and it's threatening to ruin his life. And they just did that over and over again. And I eventually tapped out and I never did watch the final season. I never did. But I loved the show up until that point. And then the movie came out, Rob. I really liked the movie. And I never saw the final season 
of of Entourage on TV, and I just skipped it and went right to the movie. I actually had a lot of fun with the movie myself. So I, I, I it's not the greatest comedy of all time, but I thought the movie was actually pretty good. What did you think of it, Rob? I, I like the movie too. I mean, I I again the show. I loved Art. Was it Ari Gold? Was that the name of his agent? Um, yes. Uh, Jeremy Piven was great. I really like the show, but yeah, I like you. It gets a little tiresome. By the way, uh, as a side note, I like Sasha Gray's YouTube channel. <laughs> I didn't even know she had a YouTube channel. She does a lot of cooking and Twitch. Um, yeah, I'm but, seeing people uh, on the live chat are saying she's a Twitch streamer now, which is pretty yeah, cool. Uh, and uh, I, I, you know, but I think you're right. I mean, gosh, an actor with a cocaine problem? <laughs> How edgy. What kind of storytelling? I mean, come on, dude. But yeah, I think you're right about that. All right, next up. Uh, we've got Marie Seifring who writes, hey, John and guest, do you think Lovecraft Country will be picked up by another network for season two? Thanks. Yeah, I, I decided not to do this as a main topic because I found out about it about a day late. They canceled Lovecraft Country. They're not doing a season two. And I am really bummed out about that. I really enjoyed that show a lot. Now, apparently the the issue was all of season one was based on a book. And apparently they said they just could not come up with uh, a new story for a second season that the network and everybody else felt really good and confident about. And that's too bad. Do I think another network could pick it up? It depends. I mean, I, it depends on how much HBO actually owns it, but no, I, I don't see another network picking it up. I, I would love it if somebody did because I would watch the hell out of it because I really didn't. I didn't like episode two of it, but after that, it just went crazy. And by the way, we have now two people from that show are now in the MCU because the girl who played Ruby in Lovecraft Country was, of course, um, B-15. And then, of course, we've got Jonathan Majors who's going to be playing Kang. So they're both in there, which is pretty cool. But, uh, yeah, I don't know, Rob. What do you think? Do you think there's a possibility another network could pick up Lovecraft? Because it seems like a very distinctly HBO show. But I don't know. What do you think? Well, I, I think what you just said. I mean, it's based on a book, and they finished the book. So it's like, are we going to have another story? And I think, in a way... If they don't have something that's worthy of the first season and come up with something good, you know, it was it was always done as a limited series. So they did a really good job with it. And I think that's that's laudable. And I like the fact that they, you know, they ended it and they got out while the getting was good. But if they come up with a good story, I think that would be a good thing, too. But I, I like the fact that they're not pushing it. All right. Next up, we got Mike Smith, who writes, hey, John. Where do you think Star Wars is trending as a whole? Uh, their upcoming projects look interesting, but it feels like they're going down the nostalgia route a little too much. The Acolyte is the one I am most hyped about because it seems different. Thanks. Well, yeah, the ones I am most excited about are definitely the Acolyte. That That is the one I am most excited about. I'm obviously very excited for Kevin Feige's Star Wars project. Um, I am very interested in Rogue Squadron. The Patty Jenkins Rogue Squadron. I am like Top Gun in Star Wars. Give me that all day. I am very, very pumped for that. Um, they're doing the Obi-Wan thing, which I've gotten on board with. Because I think there are some interesting stories you can tell there. That's obviously going down the nostalgia thing. Uh, but things like, for instance, um, the Ahsoka Tano one. I do not like the Ahsoka Tano character. Honestly, I think the Ahsoka Tano character is one of the most annoying characters ever created in Star Wars. That said, 
my God, I love the live action incarnation of Ahsoka Tano uh, brought to life by, why am I freezing on the actress's name? I love her. Um, uh, why am I drawing a blank on Guys in the chat, help me. I, I, I love that she's in Clerks 2. Well, obviously, I loved her in Clerks 2 so much. Uh, she was in Rosario Dawson. Thank you, guys. Uh, yeah. Matthew. Matthew was the first person to fire that in the live chat. Thank you, Matthew and Craig and whatever. Rosario Dawson, who like, by the way, we're talking about like the sexiest people in movies ever. And we mentioned Cameron Diaz in The Mask and um, uh, Margot Robbie in Wolf of Wall Street. Rosario Dawson in Clerks 2. She's like every teenage guy's ultimate dream girl in that. I, I, I love her, like her personality, her quips, her humor. She's just so good. Anyway, um, I hate that character, but man, I like the live action incarnation of it. And I'm so I'm looking forward to that. And that's not really a nostalgia play because a lot of people, a lot of people forget this, Rob. Most of the movie going audience or TV watching audience have never heard of Ahsoka Tano. That's that's just that's just the reality. I don't care what anybody tells you. They're lying. That's the reality. And so doing an Ahsoka Tano show. Yeah, for some people, that's a nostalgia thing who watch the animated stuff. But for the vast majority of the TV watching audience, they've never heard of her. And so it's not really a nostalgia thing per se. So I I don't know. I, I, I think it's, there's some kind of interesting stuff coming. What would you say about that, Rob? Well, I I do too. I mean, I I think that what's coming is incredibly intriguing, and and I I wouldn't have thought I would have been as interested in it as I am, but I I'm really enjoying what they're doing, and I'm I'm therefore I can't wait to see what what's in store for us. Why do we have to wait so damn long? I agree. And by the way, uh, um, cement. Cementali Batiste sends in like a $50 super chat uh, badge in the live chat to support the channel. Thank you so much, man. That's incredibly generous of you. Thank you so much for supporting our channel and, and the shows that we do here. Dude, that's really, really generous. Again, thank you so much, man. That's really cool of you. Thank you, dude. All right. Um, let's move on here. Uh, next up, we've got Mike Smith who writes, one video game franchise that I would love to see adapted would be Mass Effect. It would be hard to execute due to its massive mythology and lore, but if somebody uh, would be able to crack the video game movie TV curse, Mass Effect could be epic. Here's what I have learned. There is no video game that can crack the video game curse. There, <laughs> there isn't. Plain and simple. There isn't. It's filmmakers that need to. And Rob, let's just take something like Sonic. That movie has no business being any good. It's stupid, but they got filmmakers attached to it who came up with some creative ways to make an endearing, joyous, fun little movie out of it, and it worked, and I ended up quite enjoying Sonic, of all things, and nobody would ever guess that Sonic is the movie that is the video game that would kind of uh, be one of the the very, very, very few video game uh, properties that would actually crack to making a decent to good video game movie. And Rob, what that tells me is this. It really has nothing to do with the game. Because, because Rob, Warcraft and Assassin's Creed should have been the projects that broke the curse. That Those, those are games that had everything you needed. And I have just come to the realization, it's like the Lego movie. A Lego movie should never work. 
a movie about plastic building blocks. It's all about the filmmakers that come on board and if they have the right idea. And at that point, the game is irrelevant. And, and I know that's going to be a very unpopular thing to say, but the game is absolutely irrelevant to whether or not a movie version of it turns out to be any good because you can get the dumbest no story game in the world in the hands of the right filmmaker. You can make a really entertaining film and you can get a game rich and steeped in mythology and everything and all that kind of stuff. Assassin's Creed is one of the best examples out there. And that is one of the worst movies I've ever seen has nothing to do with the game. And so a well-done and well-executed Mass Effect, could that be good? Sure, it absolutely could be. But it almost doesn't matter what the game is. It's all about the storyteller. I don't know, Rob, what's your take on that? I, I agree with you 100%. I mean, look, the funny thing about video games is the story that's being told, the cutscenes, they can they 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 are wildly divergent. You go to The Last of Us. I mean, I remember I've said this a million times, but watching the first or playing the first Uncharted was the first time I felt that the story was as absorbing as the gameplay. And I'm like, I love these characters. Yeah. And I think that uh, again, though, the narrative in a video game is designed to get the player from one play act play action scene, whatever you want to call it, to the next. The cutscenes facilitate that, and a lot of the time. I think that there's a mistake in thinking that, oh, a video game's just going to translate and make a great movie because that's what people think. But I don't think that's necessarily true. And I think that when you start trying to adapt video games, you run into this, oh, well, we have to figure out a way to make this more filmic or cinematic or it has we have to adapt. It's not it's not easy to do. And that's why you see things like Assassin's Creed, which should have been a lot better than it was. That's I think that's the problem that people have with these video games. And I understand video games are great. They You have a video game that will make a billion dollars. Let's turn it into a movie. Thinking it's just going to be so easy to do, but it's really not. Like yeah. you said, it's it's there's no video game story that's a, a, a slam dunk when it comes to translating it to movies. I don't think we've ever seen that kind of perfect breakthrough film yet. Nope. Not yet. Here's hoping that something like Last of Us or something like that might be it. Uh, by the way, Simon Tally sends in another $50 Super Chat badge in the live chat, too. Thank, thank you again so much, man. I really appreciate the support. And even the fact that you just send that in as a Super Chat badge and not even trying to get a question on the show or something, that's really generous and very supportive of you, dude. So thank you so much for that. We're, we're, we're all very grateful for that, man. Thank you very, very much. Uh, and the badge, the badge you put in, too, is also very cute. I hadn't seen that one before. That one's great. Thank Thank you again for that, man. All right. Uh, let's keep going here, shall we? Uh, next up, we've got Jay Wentz who writes. Um, where are we at? Oh, yeah. Uh, Jay Wentz writes. John, I see you finally watched Warrior, and I'm glad uh, I don't have to eat my sauna-drenched socks. I see a lot of people want to see the Bolo character come back, in, uh, come back, including some of the actors on the show. I think the best way to do this is, uh, is if Bolo has a twin and I think he should come, become a police officer and investigate his brother's murder as well as be a daily reminder for Assam and his guilt since he killed him with my Ling and don't get any uh, don't get along anymore. What do you think? Sorry for spoiling it for Rob, but watch. Uh, all right. Thanks. For that. And by the way, Donaldo Martinez also sends in a super chat badge. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Um, no, the answer to that is absolutely no. I, I don't want the world of warrior to become a fake death universe again. Listen, Bolo's a mortar character. I thought it was really cool. His death was shocking, but that's what these types of shows should have. 
characters die. And when they do, it should be shocking. And when they do, we shouldn't look for ways to bring them back, whether it's a twin brother or a variant or whatever. I think you're going to kill the character. You, you undo the dramatic effect when you do that. So while I love the character, his death had a profound impact on me as an audience member and on the story. And so, no, I think they, I 100% believe they should just move on now that that character died. It had its impact. Now we move on. And then another character is going to die sometime. And when they do, they should just move on from there as well. All right. Thanks for that, man. All right. Next up, uh, Jay Wentz also writes, um, also, John, I binged Kim's convenience. Oh, I love that people are watching Kim's convenience. I binged Kim's convenience over the long weekend and I loved it. Janet and Appa is my favorite dynamic. It's incredible. If I have a daughter, uh, got to say that's how I would like our relationship to be sad to see it and really hope it can come back somehow. My favorite, first of all, the Janet and Appa relationship in that show is, I mean, all the shows are great. Uma, Jung, Kimchi, they're, they're, all the relationships are great. They're all great. But to me, I think you're right. The cornerstone of that show was the relationship between Janet and Appa. And it was hilarious and sweet. And my favorite episode highlighting their relationship is the one where he finds her diary. The one where he finds her diary is my absolute favorite. Uh, I don't cry, you cry. Anyway, um, I love that show with a passion, and that relationship was absolutely amazing. All right, next up, we've got uh, Jay Wentz also writes, how do you feel about Lovecraft Country being canceled after one season? I can't believe it. The show had amazing writing, and the acting was top-notch. I also love that they were sticking to HP Lovecraft and casting black talent. Um, again, I, I, I'm bummed out. I'm bummed out that the show's not returning, but at the same time, I get it. If they, if they ran out of the source material and they don't feel like they've cracked the code on how to continue it, because Rob, that's ultimately what it came down to. It wasn't them saying, oh, not enough people like it or whatever. It was HBO who I still believe is the best network at creating original content. I still believe HBO is the king of that. And HBO, they're all about the quality of their shows. And if they just didn't feel that they've been presented with a compelling, excellent idea for a season two, then instead of just doing it anyway, say no. And we're just going to pull the plug. I I'm bummed out about it, but I respect it. Anyway, Rob, what are your thoughts on that? No, I I, I agree. You know, the the if you if you make something that turns out to be less than good or less than great, you diminish the entire, let's call it a franchise or an IP as a whole. And we see that often, you know, I, I mean, you don't want the last Jedi of anything. Huh. I don't mind the last Jedi. You don't want the rise of Skywalker I, of anything. Let's say that. Yes, so we avoid okay, our, dis but I mean, so we avoid disputes. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, if something is good, everybody's like, well, we have to make more of it. But yeah. making more of it isn't necessarily like it, it seems from a corporate spreadsheet standpoint that that would be the way to go. But if it's not going to be good, then uh, then people aren't gonna, the whole franchise is diminished. I agree. So I want to see things that are good, John. <laughs> 
And by the way, uh, our friend DJ Taterskins uh, sends in like a $20 super chat badge in the live chat. Dude, thank you so much for the little dancing uh, pair saying you are amazing. Thank you, DJ. Appreciate that very much, man. Thanks for the support. Uh, I like that dancing pair thing too. All right, next up. Uh, Matt the Kiwi writes, Hey, John and Rob. What are your thoughts on Dora and the Lost City of Gold? I never did watch it. Uh, and the lead actress, Isabel Manor. Don't know any, don't know her from anything else, so I have no opinion on it. Do you think she has the potential to be like Holly, Haley Stein, Steinfeld, uh, like she did in True Grit and Bumblebee? I, again, I've never watched the movie. I don't know. That's a very, very high high bar because Steinfeld has made a real career out of herself, and she's really good in a lot of stuff. And she was great in True Grit. Didn't she get an Oscar nomination for True Grit? I might be as a child actor. I think she did. Yeah, I mean, so that's a high bar. But I never did watch Dora and the Lost City of Gold. Did you, Rob? No. Yeah. No, so, it, it, you know, uh, not surprisingly, uh, it was not on the top of my list to run out and see. I'll, I'll say this, though. One of the reasons I avoid it is because it looked god awful. But to be fair, <laughs> oh. I've heard from a bunch of people that it's actually much better than it looked. I, I've heard from hmm. a number of people that it was actually much better than it looked. So, I, and you know, Anne has always expressed an interest in seeing it. Maybe one of these days I'll have to sit down and watch it. But as of right now, uh, no, I have not seen it, unfortunately. All right, next up. Uh, let's see here. Jay Wentz writes, Last thing I know, as a Toronto Maple Leafs fan, you get heartbroken every year. I uh, just want to say we would welcome you if you want your second team to be the Tampa Bay Lightning. I do not want my second team to be the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, go Bolts, and also can't wait to see my Buccaneers dominate again, too. Well, as long as you guys got the goat of all goats, Tom Brady, uh, you have a very, very good chance of doing that. Just hope he doesn't retire till he's 50 and you should be good. But no, I mean, if I'm, I, listen, I'm cheering for the Montreal Canadiens. I know. There is a law in Canada with, you know, up to 25 years in jail if you are a Toronto Maple Leafs fan that ever cheers for the Montreal Canadiens. But as a Canadian, once the Toronto Maple Leafs go out, I cheer for the next Canadian team up. It doesn't matter if it's the Flames or the Oilers or the Jets. It doesn't matter. That's the team I'm cheering for. So there you go. But hey, congrats on all the success. You guys, it looks like you're going to take that cup. You're up three games to one. It's all good. All right. McDavid deserves better rights. It saddens me to think that the consciousness of our original Loki is gone. I don't think he is. He's not really gone. Uh, variant Loki seeing a VHS replay was visually stunning, but it doesn't replace his decade-long arc. Do you think he's truly gone, or did he ascend to Valhalla for dying a noble death? Honestly, McDavid and Rob, I don't know how you feel about this. It's, it's the same Loki. It just is. It is the exact same Loki up to that exact same point in time. And then... Rob, you and I were talking about this off off camera before the show started, but I said this on the show the other day. What we have now seen in the Loki series is an accelerated evolution uh, that Loki has now been put in circumstances that accelerated his evolution of a character that in the regular timeline took him several films and several years to get to. You know, when we see that great scene at the end of Ragnarok where Loki and Thor are standing in Thor's chamber on the ship that has escaped Asgard, and they have like a really good conversation with each other. Like that's kind of the point. I won't say what happens in episode five, but that's kind of the point, the same point that we see him in a conversation that he has with Sylvie at the end of, or near the end of episode five. It is still the same Loki. And all the things that were inside were still the same things that were inside. And now he's been put into a set of circumstances that have brought him to a place that it took him several years to get in that 
you know, chamber conversation with Thor at the end of Ragnarok. So to me, it's still the same guy. Rob, I'm going to hand it over to you. Can you carry this for a minute? I need to run to my freezer and get some ice. But, you know, how do you see that and how do you interpret the whole, you know, is this the same Loki? Is it not the same Loki? How do you look at it? Well, I think, okay, the the Loki that we see in this series is the Loki from 2012. So he is the same Loki. It's just we haven't, he's not going through the same evolutionary tract in terms of becoming a better person uh, or a better God than he was. Uh, than we, we saw the Marvel Universe, the Marvel Cinematic Expansion through the Dark World and all the way through Ragnarok and to the end of his life in um, Infinity War. But I think what's really interesting is what we're getting now is we're we're seeing it, it's a different it's a different track, but we're still seeing the evolution of Loki. And I have to say, I mean, whether you I, I found this Loki series to be a little different than I would have hoped, but I find Hiddleston's performance and the moment when he had a real revelation that he'd lied and disappointed everyone he'd ever loved in this neck in this recent episode don't, don't give away details of the episode right but okay the sentiment we've seen it building through the whole show i mean this idea look that's what they said in the past episodes caused this variant perhaps is that uh love and then of course we had we had mobius talking about oh great you know the greatest form of narcissism you know falling in love with an aspect of yourself i find it really interesting i mean i think the character evolution has been good but i it, it is even though it's a variant, it's still the same Loki. And he's just, it's, uh, so he didn't go through the same experiences, but I think he's the same because he really is the same Loki. He became a variant, but he wasn't a variant in 2012 until that moment happened. He was our Loki. And then, so I think it is kind of the same if that makes any sense. I mean, he's certainly the same Loki that had been around for hundreds of thousands of years as yeah. our Loki. And the only difference is like 10 of those years. But I think it is kind of the same Loki. It's the Loki from our universe that became a variant. If All that right. makes sense. It does. All right. Next up. Ryan Lohner writes, so Stephen Dorff, and I'm not going to go off on this Dorff thing again, uh, who spent, we did that yesterday, who spent the last three decades in a constant state of almost having a good career. I'm sorry. I'm going to read that again, though. So Stephen Dorff, who has spent the last three decades in a constant state of almost having a good career, is now making a desperate bid for attention by trashing Marvel. I think we all know where this is going. Well, listen, here's the thing, though, and I'm not going to go into the whole thing again. He wasn't just trashing Marvel. He, tra he was trashing all comic book entertainment and trashing all those who make it and trashing all those who enjoy it. And whether you're a fan of DC or Marvel, whatever, and, and it's, it's just ironic considering the only reason 90% of the people who recognize his name is because he was in one of those pieces of embarrassment, as he calls them. But anyway, I'm not going to go into it all again. Not going to go into it all again. All right. Uh, uh, Guillaume LaBelle writes. R.I.P. Richard Donner, uh, a great loss, but yet a very fulfilling life. That man made us believe a man could fly. Superman, the movie, still to this day, one of the best comic book movies ever made. He will be missed. And, you know, one of the unfortunate things, we talked about this yesterday, one of the unfortunate things about the Superman movie is that people forget about Ladyhawk and Goonies and these other, like, classics 
that he did. You know what, Rob? It's funny. Yesterday, uh, our buddy, our mutual buddy, Cliff, um, who is a, who's a, a Hollywood guy here as a producer and things like that, he heard us talking on the show yesterday and heard me mention Lady Hawk. So he sent me this great clip yesterday of him in a theater interviewing Richard Donner and talking to him about Lady Hawk. He said, hey, I heard you talk about Lady Hawk. Thought you'd get a kick out of this. It's like, you son of a bitch. That's you sitting and talking with Richard Donner in front of a theater and talking. Oh, it was so good. It was so good. And yes, a life, as you would often say, Rob, a life well lived and uh, his accomplishments uh, are going to be are historic and they're going to be Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame. All right, next up, Wes Maurer writes, John, um, half show Friday, no show Monday. No one deserves time off more than you, but I feel like a junkie trying to get a fix. I need more of the John Campia show. LOL. Anyone ever ask what kind of music do you listen to? Um, yeah, of course, Friday's show was cut cut off in half because the internet in my neighborhood went out halfway through the show. And then, of course, we decided to take Monday off. Um, yeah, listen, I have very huge variety of musical tastes. I listen to almost anything like seriously, I'll listen to like, uh, I'll listen to like some classic Rob zombie. I'll listen. My favorite band is U two. Uh, and then I'll listen to a bunch of, you know, Donald Glover. I'll listen to like old school, like cool Modi. I'll listen to Jay Z. I'll listen to Metallica. I'll listen. The only thing I hell I'll even listen to a lot of like classical. I'll listen to some like really good classical. The only thing I don't like is country music. No, no offense intended to anybody who loves country. None at all. If that's what, if that's your cup of tea, awesome. But yeah, country music just never worked for me. There, there's been a few tunes, obviously like with the great Kenny Rogers and things like that, but yeah, country music just doesn't do it to me. Rob, when you're listening to music, what are you usually listening to? Well, I listen to a lot of soundtrack music. Mm. Uh, I listen to a lot of classical, and I listen to a lot of my favorite 80s bands still because I have a vast collection of 80s music. But, you know, I'm always looking – I'm always on the lookout for new music, and I, I, I like new music. And there's so much out there, like on Spotify and – and there's there's a lot of really interesting bands that are constantly popping up in my feed. So, yeah. All right. Next up, we've got LGP Vintage Toys who writes, I am not into anime, but I stumbled onto Therese, the Philippines anime on Netflix. Wow. I couldn't stop watching it. Love the world building and the characters. Have you seen it? I've seen bits of it, but my wife, Anne, who is Filipino, uh, a bunch of people recommended it to her on her social media and she watched and she binged the whole thing and she really liked it. So I got to sit down and watch it here pretty soon because, and the little glimpses I saw of it as Anne was watching in the living room looked actually pretty good. So I'm probably going to have to check it out myself at some point because Anne really liked it. All right. Sun's in five. It certainly looks that way. Uh, I need to see the suicide squad to get excited about peacemaker. The trailers feel like he's a fun side character, but I don't know if he can carry a show. It feels like the Cleveland show. <laughs> that's a good that's a good example. It feels like the Cleveland show. Like really out of all the family guy characters, he gets his own show. LOL. Yeah, I Here's the thing, Rob. I like John Cena. I think he is terrific as a supporting comedic character. When they try to make him a lead in that movie Blockers, 
that movie had its upside, but ultimately it really showed to me that Cena cannot carry a film. And there's not much in this world that he can't carry when you look at him, but he can't carry a film. And while I have loved a lot of the Peacemaker moments in the Suicide Squad trailers, I, I haven't seen anything that convinces me that he can be the main guy. Now, granted, these are just trailers, and I agree with Sons in Five. Maybe we see Suicide Squad, and that's like, okay, I can watch a whole show dedicated to this guy. But listen, James Gunn seems to think it's going to work, and I trust him. I know. How are you feeling about Peacemaker right now? Uh, you know, the the glimpses, honestly, that we've seen of Peacemaker in the trailers have left me a little worried. And John Cena's performance in Fast 9 was not exactly the most compelling. And look, I hope J uh, James Gunn... Look, nobody directed Dave Batista better than James Gunn did. So I'm, I'm hoping I'm hoping that, that James Gunn heading up this Peacemaker series, obviously there's something he knows that we don't know because we haven't seen it yet. So I'm, I'm going in on it thinking, hey, this could absolutely be great. And I certainly hope it is. All right, next up, we got BK Dan who writes, John, you probably made this a main topic or off the top, but did you hear that? Obviously, this came in yesterday. Did you hear that Richard Donner, the director of The Goonies and Lethal Weapon and Superman has died at the age of 91 on, on the 5th of July? And we did, yeah. We So we obviously talked about that yesterday on the show. Um, and uh, obviously, we just did again. And tremendous loss. But again, what an absolute iconic Halls of Valhalla kind of career that that dude had and the influence that he had in his movies had. All right. Next up, uh, John's remote control writes, Hey, John and co loving Superman and Lois. Did you see episode 11? Yes, I did. It bothers me a bit that young Superman looks nothing like the adult version. It's a small role, not very important, but in other shows like dark, uh, it can be confusing to remember, uh, who's who has it happened to you? No, nah, I really don't care. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I never care when they get a younger version of somebody, if it really doesn't look like them all that much. I mean, when it does look like them, I mean, like, I'm like, whoa, they really nailed the look. Like, for instance, uh, young Tony Soprano being played by James Gandolfini's son. I mean, it makes you go, whoa, that totally looks like, you know, Tony Soprano. But when it doesn't, it doesn't phase me. It really doesn't. It, 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 it just it doesn't make any difference to me whatsoever in the world. Rob, what about you? Like when you see a movie or a TV show and then they bring in a younger version of that character for a flashback or whatever, it, is it important to you that it looks like that character or does it just kind of float under the bridge? Well, I, How do you see it? I, if it doesn't look like that character, I find it distracting. Mm. But when it when somebody finds uh like look looking at James Gandolfini's son playing a young Tony Soprano, I'm like, wow. You know, you like that's pretty amazing. But if they don't look like the person, then it becomes distracting. Like I'll tell you, one of the worst examples of that I thought was in J.J. Abrams' first Star Trek movie, the kid playing young Kirk. To me, was distractingly nothing like Chris Pine, mm. and I I'm just like, come on, man, how did this kid get cast as young Chris Pine? Because right. he looked like a brat. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Ah, it doesn't affect me at all. All right, whatever. Dangerous D writes, should deep fake be used more? I saw a deep fake version of the movie The Irishman and they compare the original side by side. No question the deep fake was better. Uh, why hasn't Hollywood used it more since they're also way cheaper to use than CGI? Here's the thing, Dangerous D. And Rob, let me know if you concur, concur or not. This is one of those examples 
where somebody okay let's let's put it this way think about basketball you're coming down the court is it a smart idea to heave just heave up a shot from mid court instead of trying to get down close to the basket and take a shot of course it's not a good idea you know 95% of those shots miss but once in a while as the clock's running down, somebody heaves up a shot from half court and it goes in. And then people go say, see, you should always shoot a half court shot. The visual effects artists do better work. They do better work. But yeah, there's going to be from time to time, somebody who uses like a deep fake piece of software and whatever to come up with something that might actually end up looking better, but that should never be considered the rule. That should never be, oh, I saw that happen once. That means all the time, this is what they should do. Um, Not to mention, they didn't reveal how much time and effort and work went into making their version, which might've been completely cost prohibitive and maybe more expensive than what everybody else did in trying to make an entire four hour long feature film like they did with the Irishman. But so, and there's a lot of crossover, by the way, like the technology that goes into using deep, deep fake stuff is the same technology. A lot of the same technology that the artists are using as well. So it's, it's a little bit of a, of a misnomer. I think, I don't know, Rob, how would you address that? Well, yeah, I mean, I think as, as, Again, you know, we live in a time here where there's all different kinds of technology showing up all the time. And I look, I believe that we we as a species, we need to come up with some kind of I don't know, ethics regarding this kind of thing. Maybe, you know, when it comes to say like different things that are going on in entertainment. Remember they were going to do the James Dean movie? Oh yeah. What a joke you know, that was. But like, is this something that we should be doing? I mean, I don't think so. Uh, I I don't like that idea. I think the reason we love movies so much and we love watching shows is because we know it, we're watching real people. And if we're starting to see things like deep fake technology being used to, I don't want to watch that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and we need some kind, I think we... We as a species need to come up with these kinds of, we have to answer these ethical questions. You know, you go back to Jurassic Park, just because you can do a thing doesn't mean you should do a thing. (laughs) Or what is it? um, uh, Oh, what's the name of the comedian again who does the voice of Ratatouille? Um, Patton Oswalt. Patton Oswalt's got a great joke where he says, science, we're all about the shoulda. No, we're all about the coulda, not about the shoulda. And I, yeah. I, I just thought it was great. Anyway, Rob, we've kept you over time here today. Thanks a lot for being here. Rob, in the meantime, where can people follow you and all your adventures online till we see you here again? Well, as always, you can find me on Instagram at Robert Meyer Burnett. Find me on Twitter at Burnett RM or find me on my own YouTube channel, The Burnett Work, and my show, Rob Observations, the show about something. All right, Rob, awesome job as always. And we will talk to you again later, my man. Talk to you soon. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and the only Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett. But listen, guys, we still got some time here, so let's keep on going through your live comments and questions you guys have sent in. We'll pick things up here with Brother I Have Fallen, who writes, Hey, John, what if the sacred timeline isn't about uh, every precise point slash event in time, but only the events that lead to a specific future slash outcome? The idea of a sacred timeline is just more propaganda for the TVA indoctrination. Here's the thing, though. Every little thing, does. it's the whole concept of the butterfly effect. 
Like every, the smallest change will create a cascading domino effect that leads to massive change, right? If you show up, if you leave your house 10 seconds later than you were supposed to leave your house to go to a get together, you might now hit a red light, whereas you might've before hit a green light. So now that 10 seconds turns into a minute and 10 seconds. And being a minute and 10 seconds late, you wouldn't have thought about the idea that, oh, maybe I should stop and grab a chocolate bar on the way because you were on time, but you're like, I'm running a little bit behind. I'll stop and grab a chocolate bar. So now as a result of leaving 10 seconds later than you were, you've hit red lights, you've gone more late, you've decided I'm going to stop at the store. Now you're interacting with a counter guy who was never going to have an interaction with you that day. And then that creates a cascading effect. So that's the whole point about time and the butterfly effect is that it all has a massive cascading effect. Now, ultimately, what does the TVA's play here? And is it a massive manipulation? Probably, but we'll see how that plays out in the final episode. All right, thanks for that, brother. Next up, Ryan Loner writes, as I take my headphones off here. All right, Ryan Loner writes, just imagine if Saving Private Ryan was made now with Vin Diesel's contract, insisting that he has to be the main hero uh, who never, ever looks bad and deals out more attacks than anyone else. Yeah, if, if uh, well... I don't know. Just because Vin Diesel does it with his Dominic Toretto character doesn't mean he would do that for every other character. But yes, if Vin Diesel was the producer of Saving Private Ryan and he made his character Dominic Toretto, then that whole great scene when the tank comes down the street, oh, Dom just would have jumped on it and torn the tank apart. Yeah, it to- totally would have done it. Totally easy. But yeah, just because he does it um, with Dominic Trello. That doesn't mean he's going to do it with all of his characters. I don't think he would. All right. Thanks for that, Ryan. Next up, Alan writes, Hey, John, love seeing Lady Sif in uh, Loki episode four. Would you rather go through a time loop like Loki endured with Lady Sif for 24 hours with minimal breaks or have your breakdancing videos in Star Wars fan film released? I'd rather go through the Lady Sif kneeing me in the groin because then at least I could say that Lady Sif was touching my groin. So it's all in how you spin it. Isn't it? It's all in how you spin it. So that's what I would probably go with. All right, next up. Uh, Andres writes, one of two. Uh, So I've been enjoying the family memes that have invaded the internet while being high as a kite. I realized that if Toretto, Hobbs, and Jacob were to appear in the MCU, they they, they would have been heavy hitters. We see Cap holding a helicopter down and struggle, but Hobbs and Shaw... And Hobbs and Shaw did the same feat, not only halted, but was able to pull it and reattach the chain, not to mention they took down a super soldier. So that means that those three could fight against most MCU villains and hold their own, even Thanos himself. Uh, yeah, yeah, again, it's, I, I mean, don't even get me going. Don't even get me going on that. I, I mean, the, just the whole thing about how invincible everybody is, particularly Dominic Toretto, how there's no stakes. no ex- And when there's no stakes, there's no excitement. When there's no stakes, there's no excitement. Like, here's the thing. Here's a great example. There is nothing more tense. There is this foreign film about... Remember a few years... I can't remember... The, tell me if you guys remember the name of it, but there was a foreign film a few years ago about this club where they just play Russian roulette. You know, you got to spin the gun. There's one bullet in the chamber. You spin the chamber, put it to your head and pull the trigger. Do you guys, any of you guys remember that movie or the name of it? Anyway, that is one of the most intense 
gut ripping, um, blood pressure increasing, ears start bleeding, tension you could ever have on screen. But let me ask you this. How exciting is that scene if there's no bullet in the chamber? 13, thank you, Colby, Jack Hayward, thank you guys. Well done. That's incredibly tense and and exciting and stressful when your character's got one bullet in the chamber, spins the chamber, puts it to his head and pulls the trigger because you know this might kill him, this might end it all, blah, blah, blah. Now imagine if there's, how exciting is that scene if we as the audience know there's no bullet in the chamber? It's not exciting at all. There's no stakes. That is Fast 9. That's the, that's the perfect way to, to describe Fast 9. There's no bullet in the chamber. Fast 9 is watching a game of Russian roulette when you know that there's no bullets in the chamber. It takes away any excitement. It doesn't matter what's happening on screen. When you know there's no stakes and no consequences, there's no excitement. So yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with that one from now on. When everybody asks me, why don't I like Fast 9? And I say that as a big fan of Fast 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. I like the franchise very much. But it's Fast 9 is watching a movie of Russian roulette when you know that there's no bullet in the chamber. Yeah, yeah that's a great way to say it. Okay, I'm going to go with that from now on. All right, next up. Um, Nicholas, uh, Nicholas Priera writes, General Lane, I guess we're talking about Superman Lois, said the gas was made from synthetic kryptonite. It wasn't real kryptonite that Superman and the other Kryptonian hailed. Irrelevant. It still had the same effect. And frankly, green kryptonite has always been inconsistent. It instantly nails him to the ground in poorly written stories, uh, and she gradually weakens him in other stories. Superman keeps fighting Metallo. It never killed him. Yeah, but that's the basic thing that doesn't give you an excuse though as a storyteller to play flat fast and loose with it just because other people have been inconsistent doesn't give you permission to be inconsistent when superman is in a room with kryptonite it should weaken him and drop him to his knees if you put in gas form it's still there in the room i don't care if it's synthetic kryptonite or not if it's there in the room it should weaken him and he shouldn't have to breathe it in. Look, I love Superman and Lois. I do. You guys know I'm totally over the moon about this show. I love this show, but I'm not going to give it a pass on that. That to me, Nicholas, in my opinion, you have a different opinion and I respect that. But in my opinion, it's, it, I don't, it doesn't get a pass because of that. But that's just me. All right. Next up. Uh, Andres writes, John, do you uh, do John? You mm, try this again. Do John you? Sounds like a martial art, my martial arts name, Do John Yu. That's my own personal martial arts style, Do John Yu. Anyway, uh, Do John Yu have talked many times about how you made the jump to your channel and how you just wanted to make 200 bucks a month. But how long did it take uh, for your hard work to start being profitable? By the way, I drive shuttles and listen to you. Love sharing your gospel. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for having me along with you on your day, man. I really appreciate that. That's on. That's an honor. Thank you. Um, when I made the jump, I mean, my goal, my hope was I could make $200 a month on my YouTube channel. Now, I had saved up money. I'm very good with my money. So I had saved up money. I knew I had X number of, of months that I knew I could go and give this thing a shot, maybe a year or two. I had saved up enough money and some living expenses because, I'm again, I'm very thrifty and I'm very good with my money. 
So I thought if I can make $200 a month to at least start for the first three or four months, I think I can make a go of this. Now, fortunately, I started off way better than that. Like my first month, I made I made well more than $200 a month. So I actually think it was, I want to say four months. Like right away, I was making more money than I was expecting. But I would say it was around month four or five that I was like, okay, I'm no longer eating into my savings. I'm actually earning my income now, my full-time income from this channel. Because for the first like three or so months, I was making more money than I thought, but not enough to actually provide all my living expenses. So I was having to draw draw from my savings. But after about four, four to five months is when I no longer had to withdraw from my savings. And at month six, seven, or eight is when not only was I making enough to pay all my expenses, I was actually making enough that I could start putting money back into my savings. So yeah, it was, I would say that was roughly my, that was roughly, but listen, for everybody, your, your mileage may vary. Some people may go and do something like what I'm doing and be like super profitable in the first few weeks. Some people may take six or seven years. For me, that was my kind of uh, window. That was my experience at any rate. All right. Thanks for asking, man. Next up, uh, Ann Hong writes, Hey, John, have you seen the Dominic Toretto memes lately? I've seen everybody is sending me all the Dominic Toretto memes. Yes, I've seen them all. Uh, I love them, but I fear that it's giving the Fast and Furious franchise more publicity and enabling and inspiring Vin Diesel. I don't think that's a problem. Uh, A producer on Fast and the Furious to do even more outrageous Herculean BS with Dom and the Fast and Furious franchise. I, I mean, listen, he's already done it. It's already done, right? To Vin Diesel, who I love, make no mistake about it. I have a very special place in my heart for Vin Diesel. I'm a big fan of Vin Diesel. But just because I'm a fan doesn't mean I'm not going to mention a legitimate gripe I have, which is I don't like how invincible he insists Dominic Tretto on being. But he's already pretty much gone as far as you can go. I mean, he literally, in Fast 9, there's literally a scene where he jumps into a fight against 30 soldiers, single-handedly. In hand-to-hand combat, fighting like 30 soldiers, kills a whole bunch of them. And when they start to get an upper hand, like 30 guys against one, when they start to get an upper hand, Vin Diesel just goes, family, grabs these giant chains and literally pulls down the entire concrete structure that they're in. And he alone survives. I mean, it's already as far as it can go. It's already as far as it can go. It, it's Roadrunner and Cartoon at this point. It is what it is. I don't think the memes are going to make it any worse, to be honest with you, brother. All right. Uh, next up, Suthius writes, Okay, for hundreds, if not thousands of years, Odin was the protector of the Nine Realms. Odin, now, is no more. And Thor, well, Thor is off on his own adventures. So who exactly is or will be protecting the Nine Realms? Will Earth now see more invaders than before? Theoretically speaking, yes. I remember that kind of came up after Thor, the Dark World, when it kind of looked like Loki had supplanted uh, Odin. These conversations came up back then. And is this going to open earth up now to more dangers that Odin was no longer overseeing and protecting everything. And theoretically, yes. So let's see if the MCU actually uh, pursues that and goes after that. Cause it's an interesting thing. God, I miss Odin. I love the Odin character played by Anthony Hopkins. I, 
it's the MCU fake death universe and Odin should really never be gone. So I hope he comes back at some point. Anyway, uh, by the way, Kevin Bloom sends in a super chat badge in the live chat. Thank you, Kevin. Appreciate that, man. All right. Next up, we've got uh, Disney's gifts by Bryce writes. Hey, guys. I just watched the 2007 Death at a Funeral. That's a delightful little movie with Peter Dinklage and Alan Tudyk. I thought my head was going to explode from the pressure of laughing so hard. I heard that I should stay away from the American remake. Is it really that bad? I don't remember the American remake, but oh my God. (laughs) That movie, especially when you understand what Peter Dinklage is doing to the family. It's pretty funny. Now, look. I didn't laugh as much as you did. Um, it is, and it's been a beat since I've watched it. I didn't laugh as much as you did, but when he shows up and you start realizing like the blackmail that's going on, whatever total gold, it is a funny movie and not in my top 10 or top 20 comedies of all time, but it is a really good one to watch. And if you guys have not seen it, take Disney's recommendation there and check it out. It's actually really quite good. Um, okay. Next up, Skylar Hillman writes, it's been a while since I sent in a tip. No, pro- hey, babe, whenever you can be here, man, it's just good to have you here, dude. John, you should know this by now. Dominic Tretto can do anything with family. Just kidding. Loving the Dom family memes, though. There are a lot of great memes going on. Obviously, the big popular one is the one with uh, um, the one with Anakin Skywalker. That one's pretty funny. There's a whole bunch of funny ones out there right now. Thanks for that, Skylar. Uh, the Rabid Beast writes, UFC 275. By the way, I'm really looking to, looking forward to UFC 264 this weekend. Uh, UFC 275, White Spike versus Quiet Place Alien, who you got? I got to go with the White Spike. I mean, there's a couple of reasons. The Quiet Place Aliens have no sight. So they're down one of the major senses. Also, the Quiet Place Aliens have no ranged weapons. The White Spikes can hit you from 100 yards away. They've literally got their spike projectiles, projectiles, right? So there's two major advantages. The white spikes can see and the white spikes can attack from a distance, neither of which can the quiet place aliens go. So yeah, if there was a planetary battle between the quiet place aliens, which are horrifying, uh, or the white spikes, I got to give it to the white spikes. They just, the, those are two just, insurmountable advantages that they have. So I've got to give it to them. All right. Next up. Uh, Joseph Curtis writes, Hey, John, thank you for changing my life with Zevia Cola. Uh, Dr. Zevia is the best. Anyway, one of my most anticipated films is Spider-Man No Way Home. But one of my big worries for this film is the issue where Spider-Man can't just be Spider-Man by himself. Uh, I mean, that's, I mean that the presence of Tony is felt throughout his two films, which I loved. And I, and like, don't get me wrong. I'm excited for what this movie could do with other Spider-Men potentially. But the other thing, Rami, Rami movies, the one thing Rami movies have over this Spider-Man rendition is that those felt like actual Spider-Man solo films. I completely agree, by the way. So my question to you, John, is this. Is it concerning that Tom Holland could get overshadowed in his own film yet again? Or should I calm down? Ha! Uh, thanks, John, for all you do. Blessings, dude. Well, listen, I mean... One of the, th- one of the worries that I have 
about Doctor Strange being in this movie is, again, Spider-Man coming across as somebody's youthful ward, right? When are we going to get to see Spider-Man just be Spider-Man? Now, I say that as somebody who really enjoys Spider-Man Homecoming and Spider-Man Far From Home. I really like both, like a lot. I like those movies a lot. I think they're great. Not as good as Spider-Man 2, like the Sam Raimi Spider-Man 2, but I think those two movies are great. But I understood the presence of Tony Stark in the first one. I really thought they should have then moved on from it and just made Spider-Man 2. I also, you guys know me, I, I it irritates me that they have to make Spider-Man Iron Man Jr., that they have to give him an Iron Man suit. Spider-Man's not cool enough, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know if you knew this. Spider-Man is not cool. There's nothing cool about Spider-Man. You know what is cool? Iron Man. So what if we give Spider-Man his own Iron Man armor? Ooh, now he's cool. He wasn't cool before. He's useless before. Needs that Iron Man armor. Now he's a little Iron Man. He's got his own built-in AI, just like Iron Man. His suit can sprout random, inexplicable things just like Iron Man's armor. It's got its own death kill weapons system. Kill mode just like Iron Man's armor. Ooh, it's a little Iron Man. Isn't that adorable? I hate that. I do. I still love the movie, but that part still irritates me. Why doesn't anybody respect Spider-Man? Why do why don't why do why does Kevin Feige, who obviously knows what he's doing? But why doesn't Kevin Feige believe Spider-Man is cool enough as Spider-Man? I don't know. That's just me. That's just me. Now, again, I'll hear some weak, 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 weak arguments of, well, John, you know, in the comic books, there was a time that they, yeah, well, guess what? Fucking Squirrel Girl's in the comic books. Guess what? In the comic books, the reason Lex Luthor hates Superman, do you guys, do you guys know the real reason in the comic books why Lex Luthor hates Superman? Because they were doing an experiment once together <laughs> that ended up in Lex lo- losing his hair. <coughs> a drop went down the wrong pipe. And that's why Lex Luthor hates Superman. Because Superman made him lose his hair. Did you know that that's comics? That's, that's the comic history, ladies and gentlemen, right there. There it is. So I don't give a shit if at some point in the comics, well, you know, at this one point in the comics, uh, he did give Spider-Man. I don't give a shit. That's a stupid, that's stupid. It's dumb. And in my opinion, if you like it, that's great. I'm not trying to yuck on your yum. I'm just saying from my own personal perspective. Okay. Just from my own personal perspective, uh, I think it's dumb. And I really don't think they should have gone that way in the movies. I really don't. I wish they just given Spider-Man his Spider-Man costume. Let him be Spider-Man because Spider-Man is awesome. And he doesn't need to be Iron Man in order to be awesome. That's just me. And again, if you loved it, that's great. I know Robert Meyer Burnett loves the suit. And hey, listen, there's no doubting. The suit looked cool. Even I, who hate that, even I have to admit, the damn suit looked pretty freaking cool. There's no denying it. It makes a pretty damn good hot toy as well. But anyway, that's just my take on that. All right, uh, next up. We've got a couple of minutes left here. Uh, this next one comes to us from Ahmed Z, who writes, Hey, John, 
Did you see The Rock saying Black Adam has only one week left in production? After Actually, they've wrapped production uh, on his Instagram. So cool. I'm looking forward to it tremendously. My general question is, what is the overall future of the DCU looking like with the the, uh, the recent acquisition? It's impossible to say, Ahmed. Of course, by the recent frequent the frequent acquisition he's referring to is the fact that discovery now owns warner brothers they will own owner brothers it still has a whole bunch of t's to cross i's to dot it has to pass government approvals there's still some formalities that have to happen but essentially discovery yes the hgtv food network people discovery now owns warner brothers what is going to happen My thought is this, and this is just my thought. That's all. But my thought is that the head CEO of Discovery, he's got a lot of networks. Discovery is made up of a lot of individual networks like HGTV, Food Network, um, uh, TLC, uh, like the 10 different little networks that all fall under Discovery. And his rep, the CEO of All Discovery, is to put people in charge of each of those networks, and he really lets them run those things. They all have to answer to him, but he really gives them a lot of autonomy to run those things and give them freedom to operate their networks the way they see fit. They have to justify their actions to him. They have to answer to him, but he gives them a lot of leeway. What I am guessing is going to happen. And this is just a guess. What I am guessing is going to happen is, I think when he brings in Warner Brothers, I think he is going to spin DC off. I think he's going to make DC its own studio. That he will put somebody in charge in, like say, a Walter Hamada. I hope it's Walter Hamada. But he will put somebody in charge, so let's say Walter Hamada, and Walter Hamada will no longer answer to Warner Brothers or anybody at Warner Brothers. He will answer directly to the CEO of Discovery, just like all the other heads of the various networks do. And then Warner Brothers will be its own thing. And if that happens, and I'm not sure that it will, it just seems um, it just seems like that's the way they're going to go because that's the way this guy has traditionally done it with his other networks under his umbrella. If that's the way they go, I think very, very good things are in store for the future of DC and the DCEU. I I think there are some very good things in store in the future. I think the the future looks really good. Honestly, I think the future looks good for the DCEU right now as it is, but uh, I think there could be some very, very good things coming up. All right. Anyway, that's my thoughts on that. Thanks for that, Ahmed. Next up, we've got Island Girl, who writes, Greetings, John and Rob. And obviously, Rob's not here anymore. Uh, from the Caribbean island of Antigua. I'm unable to watch your show live because I'm at work, but I do watch the replay every day. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Island Girl. I appreciate that. Anyway, I watched the Tomorrow War recently, and it was a blast. The monsters were scary as hell. I got to say, the monsters were great. The whole monster thing, and and look, we've seen movies do the swarm thing before, right? We've seen that before. We've seen it in everything 
from World War Z. We've seen it all the way to Stormship, uh, Starship Troopers, like the swarming aliens. We've seen it, but it was done to very, very good effect in the Tomorrow War. I thought they did that with wonderful effect, and they did a terrific job. So, yeah, I like that a lot, too. And again, I, the movie was better than I thought it would be, and I liked it even more the second time around. Again, I still, I don't, I still don't think The Tomorrow War is a great movie, but yeah, I, I quite liked it myself. All right. Uh, Timmy writes, Corella has made over 200 million worldwide and showing decent legs. What number will it have to make before it is considered profitable? More than that. Hell of a lot more than that. An F load more than that. Actually, let me go over here and look up something for a second. Uh, let me see if I can find this. Okay. So they're saying, and I don't believe this at all. No, no, this that's that's not right. Yeah, the budget on the movie is it cost them two hundred million dollars to make the movie, which is unreasonable, unreasonably expensive. So the movie makes. Let's just do this quickly here, right? Just for fun. Let me see if I can bring this up here. I'm going to bring up the uh, Campia classroom for just a moment here. Okay, so remember, some people will hear like a number like that and say, oh, it, it co costs $200 million to make. That means it's already profitable because it's made $200 million. That's not how it works, right? It's not how it works. So it cost um, $200 million, right? Okay, so now you get box office equals 200 million great but now you have box office minus theaters cut which is generally speaking there are a whole bunch of people that misrepresent this but generally speaking the box office cut is one third okay one third so let's for argument's sake i know it's not the complete accurate math but let's just say the art for argument's sake it was 210 million dollars that's made of the box office okay so let's just so just so we can round it up properly let's say the movie's made 210 million dollars okay so one third of that is 70 million dollars so um studio actually gets 140 million so already Already, if it costs $200 million and they're getting only $140 million back, they're already $60 million in debt. They're already $60 million in the hole. Now, on top of that, marketing. Let's go low. Let's go low. Let's say they spent $25 million on marketing. They most likely spent more than that, but let's say $20, uh, $25 million. Now, Corella is, if you take the 60 million in there in the hole from the cost of 200 million and only getting back 140, and you add on top of that debt another 25 million, now Corella is 85 million in the hole. Now, this, this isn't exact. This isn't exact. This is just spitballing and giving you a rough guess and rough numbers, right? They need to do a hell of a lot better. They need to do a hell of a lot better than 200 million worldwide. And by the way, let me just double check to make sure that's that's true. Uh, 
Let's see where it's actually sitting right now. As of right now, Cruella has made, yeah, only made $204 million worldwide. Yeah, so they're going to end up taking a bath on this. They're going to end up taking a total financial bath on this. That's not good. Now, they've already said they're going to do a sequel. And the reason they're going to try to do a sequel is because they believe that the pandemic, the delays, all that stuff hurt them. But also, the, the reviews and the, and the audience response to Cruella has been very, very positive. So Disney believes if we make another Cruella, if we make a sequel to this, it will do much better. That's their belief. Because a lot of people, you know, um, a lot of people loved the movie. They thought it was real. I thought it was very good. I think a lot of the audience thought it was very good. Uh, a lot, most of the critics thought it was very good. It's it's a very good movie. It's really good. So, uh, yeah. So they're going to do another one. They're going to hope it makes more. But yeah, they are they're taking a bath on that. They're taking an absolute bath. All right, guys. Let's do one more today here, and then we will call it a day. And our last one that we're going to do, um. Where are we at? Uh, BK Dan writes, John, you said in reference to In the Heights that no musical will will probably will not make $1 billion. Adjusted for a fl- Okay, yeah, but adjusted for, look, can I just, adjusted for, a fl- infl- adjusted for inflation means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. We've gone over this many times because you are just, you're trying to take one variable into consideration while ignoring two dozen other variables that would negatively affect it. And you're just ignoring those and you can't do it. Adjusting for inflation means nothing. All right, well, let's get back over to this for a second. Uh, you said no musical will probably make $1 billion. Adjusted for inflation, Sound of Music made $2.5 billion, and Snow White and the Seven Doors made $1.97 billion, both in 2020 dollars. Again, yes, however, you are ignoring dozens of other variables that if you brought them in consideration, there is no way in hell Sound of Music or Snow White would ever come close to those dollar values. And I we I constantly get in this debate with people about, well, you know, when you're talking about all-time box office, they should consider inflation. And I say, no, that is a simple an oversimplification of the situation. Is inflation a variable in understanding the adjusted value of what a movie made in the 50s versus today? Is inflation a variable? Absolutely, it's a variable. But there are others many others, some of them bigger variables than just inflation. And if you want to start bringing variables into the equation, you can't just cherry pick which variable you want to count and then ignore all the other variables. You have to bring all the variables into the discussion. And once you bring all the variables into the discussion, I am telling you right now, Sound of Music would never have made anywhere near a whiff of that amount of money, nor would Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. If you take into consideration things like the era, when you take into consideration competition, how many movies are actually being released that it has to compete against. Today, movies don't actually last in the box office more than four or five weeks. I mean, there's the odd one that does. There's the odd one that does. But back in the day, a movie can literally be in theaters for over a year. 
It just didn't have the competition. Today, pandemic notwithstanding, today, you're lucky if your movie's making money in the theaters for more than four or five weeks. And yeah, they hangs in there for week six, seven, and eight, but now it's making $1 million, $2 million, whatever per week. But generally speaking, there are so many movies that come out today that there's a reason why today most movies make 30 to 50% of their overall money in their first week of release. That never used to be the case back in the day. Those movies simply would not have made that money today. Not to mention... You know what movies back in the day, movies always are going after people's expendable income. But guess what? Back in the day, you didn't have the television industry that you have today. You had four or five channels on the dial that people could stay at home and watch if they wanted to. Today, there are literally thousands of networks that you can watch at any time with VOD and streaming on demand anytime you want. They never had to compete against that like movies do today. On top of that, you know what never used to exist back then? A multi-billion dollar video game industry that people spend a lot of their disposable income on. They never had that option back then. So instead of spending their disposable income on, you know, a $500 PlayStation 5 with six $80 games, they could have used that money to go to the movies, but that was simply expected. Like, And the list goes on. And we did a video once that kind of explained like over a dozen different variables. These things were things that movies back in those days never had to contend with. They never had to compete against. They never had to stand against. There was a much friendlier environment to movies making money at that time than there are today. You got to make all your money right away. You only last in theaters for at most two months. You didn't have to compete for expendable dollars against things like video game industry, streaming services, things like that, all all that kind of nonsense. I mean, and the list goes on and on and on. These are variables you cannot just dismiss and ignore as if they wouldn't have an impact. They have a massive impact on the industry. Massive. Incalculable. So if you want to bring inflation into it, then you're going to have to break out your calculators and start figuring out, okay, If Sound of Music could only have been in theaters for seven weeks or eight weeks, how much money would it have made? If people had the choice of buying an Xbox or a new video game, would they have gone to see Sound of Music? If Sound of Music came out in an era where we have Netflix and HBO Max and Amazon and you know all these and, and, and Peacock and Paramount Plus and Crackle and everything else that's under the sun, would they have been going out to the movies? Would they have gone to see Sound of Music a third or fourth or fifth time as opposed to staying home on a couple of those occasions? I mean, it's just the inflation argument is moot. The inflation argument is moot. And that's why, as imperfect as it is, and it is imperfect, the best way to evaluate is just to remove all the variables and take the numbers at face value. You either got to take all the variables into account or you take none of them into account. You can't cherry pick which ones you want to count and which ones you don't. And so as imperfect as it is, The only real option we have is to take the numbers at face value. 
and understand that every era of movie had its own set of circumstances and its own set of challenges that it had to face. Inflation, movie ticket prices, competition, expendable dollars, other entertainment options, all these types of things, the economy at the time in the country, all that kind of stuff. Every era of movie has its own set of circumstances that it had to deal with. And therefore, all we can do is say at the end of the day, we take the dollar value it had at face value. How much money did that movie make in its era facing the circumstances and challenges that it made versus others? And that's why, to me, the inflation argument is moot and is fog. It, it's fog. It's a distracting straw man argument. And that's, yeah, anyway, I, I can get off on, on that. But so anyway, there's that. Okay, guys, listen, I ranted way too long on that. Sorry about that, PK. I went totally over the edge on that. But it's just that it comes up so often. So it's like, ah, guys. Yeah, anyway. So there's that. Anyway, guys, that'll do it. For today's installment of the John Campion Show, thank you guys so much for joining us today. Hey, listen, there's still more questions to come from uh, Kessler, Anonymous, Ben Rayner, and others. Do not worry. When we start on tomorrow's uh, live questions part of the show, we will kick things off right where we left off. We'll pick up there, and then we'll do a companion video tomorrow, too, if we don't get all caught up. Obviously, we can't do a companion video today because today... We are talking about Loki at 4 p.m. We are doing our Loki open spoiler discussion. Make sure you guys come on back and join us for that. Okay, guys, thank you so much for spending part of your day here with us. Big thank you to Robert Meyer Burnett for bringing his glory and goodness to the show. Special thank you to all you guys who sent in those live questions and comments and the Super Chat badges as well. Number one, because it gave us great fun things to talk about. But number two... You supported this channel as you did it. And all of us involved here at the John Campus Show, thank you guys so very much for your support. Okay, guys, do the four main things. Stay smart, stay safe, take care of yourselves, and please take care of the people around you. That'll do it for me, guys. My name is John Campia, and until next time, my friends, bye-bye.